0: VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Monday, March the 6th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone and give us a shout in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273 5211 or elsewhere. It's toll free long distance 1 888 590 VOCM, which is 86. 86- 26 well over the weekend got a bit of a reprieve from the extended cold snap we were living in in this part of the province pretty glorious weekend have to say temperatures warmed up nicely bit of heat coming out of the sun get an opportunity to go out without freezing your you know what's off so great weekend let's have a great week here on the program i suppose the athletes who competed in week number two of the canada winter games on pei are on their route home closing ceremonies were yesterday Pretty successful go-around if you're talking about personal best and the experience that the athletes and coaches and families had. Brought home four medals. I mean, I don't even know what to deem successful in the overall scheme of things, but four medals did indeed uh, are making their way back to the province. Two, of course, were gold. The flag bearer for the opening ceremonies, uh, Gleb Ekstigniew, won a gold medal in trampoline, of course. And then Maddox Glover finished first in the Special Olympics Level 2 figure skating couple more medals over the weekend. Uh, figure skating pair, Lily Evans and Mark Butt took home a bronze. Mar- uh, Mike Kazine, else final medal with a bronze in boxing. So congratulations to all hands and safe travels on the way home. Quick check-in on the briar. I keep wanting to call it the Labatt's briar, right? but it's not. It's the Tim Hortons briar. Anyway, it's in London, Ontario. So I don't think either of our teams are off to the kind of start they were hoping for. Yeah, I mean, Gujus 2-1, so of course they're the reigning champions, have four Briar titles in the last six years. They play PEI today. Team Nathan Young, certainly not the start they were hoping for. Wrong side of the inch yesterday in a c- much closer game. And they're in the history books for all the, I would suggest, the wrong reasons if you're Team Nathan Young. So Nunavut in their seventh Brier. Uh, they were 0-38 until they beat Nathan Young in the first draw for both sides, so they're 0-3 and Nathan Young and his team take on Northern Ontario today quick check in in the National Hockey League good weekend for the boys so Newhook had a couple of assists and a 7-3 loss against the Dallas Stars on Saturday really sloppy old game for the Avalanche and all good things must end I suppose Dawson Mercer's consecutive games with a goal streak snapped at 8 had he scored last night against Arizona he'd be in the record books with the legendary, the great one Wayne Gretzky. So, apparently, this is a strange stat but the consecutive game goal-scoring streak for players under the age of 22 was at 9, set by Wayne Gretzky, and Mercer at 8. would it be just so cool to be in the record books alongside of Wayne Gretzky? But, hopefully, Mercer gets back on track here and snipes one in his next go-around. A couple of interesting today in histories. It was on this date in 1964, where Cassius Clay joined the Nation of Islam and changed his name to Muhammad Ali. Of course, beloved Muhammad Ali, Kali's former name, of course, his slave name. And this is a good one regarding money. I mean, the amount of money in pro sports these days is unbelievable. It was on this date in 1972 that Jack Nicholas passed Arnold Palmer as golf's all-time money winner. Throughout the course of his career, Jack Nicholas won $5.7 million. That's it. At the top of that uh, board, of course, is Tiger Woods, who's earned almost $121 million as a golfer. And that's just official earnings on tour. Of course, Tiger approached being a billionaire at one point. But imagine, Jack Nicklaus's career won $5.7 million. That's it. They play for $5.7 million every week now. So it's pretty remarkable stuff. Okay, just keep going. So it's hard enough to get to Toronto from here. And in a matter of fact, the city of Toronto was incorporated on this date in 1834. So the province apparently, when in Ireland, Premier Fury and Minister of Tourism, Steve Crocker, had a one-day conversation with Aer Lingus to hope to woo Aer Lingus to have a direct flight from Dublin to here and opportunities for heading both directions. Okay, apparently they also had a Zoom presentation with Condor, that's a German airline. It's back in 2018 and 19 where we lost those direct routes. In 19, we lost the route from St. John's to Heathrow, of course, because of the concerns with Boeing's 737 MAX 8 aircraft. And then we lost the WestJet direct route to Dublin. So, look, they really lean on the tourism industry when talking about the need to improve access to the province. You know, no real mention and conversation surrounding what I think and many people refer to as predatory pricing, which is absolutely a problem. You kind of wonder the merit in spending so much money on tourism if we can't get people there. I would suggest it's the number one concern in a billion-dollar industry, and tourism is important to this province, and tourism has the opportunity to grow leaps and bounds. So I know the province can make this, I don't know what kind of effort they put in, and whether or not the airport authority is talking to major carriers around the world. But we are never going to grow that industry the way it could. And, of course, it has an impact on commerce. It has an impact on trade. It has an impact on business. It certainly has an impact on those of us who like to get out of here every now and then, if we can afford to do so, which is cost prohibitive for so many. So what do they actually do? And will anything actually happen here? No real comment coming from uh, Aer Lingus as to whether or not this is going to happen. It looks like a long play, but it's a big deal. Just imagine what the opportunities would be even just as if you focus on tourism like the government seems to be doing. If we had one direct flight to Europe, whether it be from Heathrow or from Dublin or from Frankfurt or what have you, and one direct flight per week, say, from Newark in New Jersey, that would make such a difference in tourism. And, of course, what's good for that industry is good for us all. So, anyway, they're trying to pursue some more direct travel routes to the province. I suppose, fingers crossed, but I'd also like to know from the St. John's Airport Authority exactly what they're doing on that front. We've lost a lot of routes here in the recent past, and yes, we can indeed talk about the very dear cost of traveling inside our own province. You know, the government puts uh, some mention of the $1 million in funding split amongst Deer Lake, Gander, and St. John's in the opportunity to assist with route development and what have you, but I don't know. For some of you, travel is the least of your worries, but access to this province has a major league impact across the board, even if you're not involved in business that does international or even domestic travel across the country, even if you're not in the tourism sector. Because if opportunities are going by the wayside because of things like travel, then that's bad for all of us. Okay, just stick with the travel for a second here. So last week in the province announced an unprecedented, as they call it, $225 million for road, bridge, culvert, work, what have you. Keen focus will be on the Trans-Canada Highway. There will be some byways that will see some attention in this record-setting spend by the government. We had Jim Morgan on the program last week. He's the Executive Director of the Heavy Civil Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. Okay, So with early tenders and money going out the door earlier, the opportunity for the road work companies to be able to staff up and to plan, of course good for all of us. People want the roads done. Of course they do. But here's, I think, the looming question for me. You know, we did talk with Mr. Oregon about the night paving pilot program that proved to be some 30% more expensive for a variety of reasons. And there was also five different chemical compounds that were tested uh, some while back. Not really sure what the outcome of that was specifically, but, you know, it really comes across as they're applauding themselves for spending so much money on road work. Okay, the roads need to be done, and in many places they are just abysmal. But there's obviously some political pressure. To pave as much as possible, to spend this money to get more kilometers attended to during this road work season, that's all fine and dandy. But where is the cost-benefit analysis of changing up the chemical compound of the asphalt? And whether it be the thickness of the asphalt, the chemical compound, the type of prep work that needs to be done before you lay the blacktop. Because if we stand back, maybe they do less kilometers. Well, obviously they do less kilometers, but maybe better value for money spent. Now, I know, anyone who's been elsewhere in the country, there are road issues in many pr- places that suffer the type of freeze and thaw that we do. But from where I sit and in the vehicles that I've driven in different parts of the country, it does seem to be a bit worse here. Now, of course, I don't live full-time in another province, so I can't tell you exactly how quick the newly paved roads begin to pock and to rush and for potholes to, be, uh, to develop. But it seems to me that it's probably in all of our best interest when we talk about value for money spent that if we made the roads more robust, as they say, with a different chemical compound that stands the test of time a little bit differently than what we do today. And that's not on the civil association crew. It's not on road work companies. They respond to a contract as authored by the province. So I know it sounds really great that we're going to spend all that money and do all this road work, and it has to be done, and it's going to be good news for the road-building companies, but I just wonder whether or not we're... The politicians maybe are bending to some of that political pressure versus ensuring that the roads are a little bit sturdier, stand the test of time a little better than they do currently. What are your thoughts on that? And on that front, especially if you're from the West Coast, I got an interesting email over the weekend from this lady who had to travel for a medical reason with one of her parents or father. And so she was noting this distinct difference between the amount of salt and the mix between salt and rocks or pebbles or gravel, to control ice on the province's highways. She says once between Stephenville and, between Deer Lake and St. John's, she said it was very consistent. A couple of bad spots, but she said after she got through Deer Lake to continue the rest of the travel, it was distinctly different. Roads were peppered with gravel, much unlike the conditions she drove over from St. John's to that part of the province. So if you're on the West Coast and you notice that difference, you know, I wonder why there would be a change in the way the province approaches, whether it be snow clearing and or ice control in different parts of the province. Is there a reason for it? I don't know. If you know more about it than I do, you should give us a call. All right. so see Kane's Quest, which is obviously a very interesting and grueling skidoo race, a snowmobile race up in Labrador. It's been paused now for weather. Some nasty weather that makes it unsafe. And they're also talking about the lack of snow in certain sections of the 3500 kilometer race, which takes uh, somewhere between five and seven days to complete. And also here in the weather forecast, massive rains, unseasonal, unseasonable rains coming for parts of Labrador as well. So if the, someone from Kane's Quest wants to give us an idea of what's going on, we'd be into it. And this story was, I was tagged on social media with this one over the weekend. I'm not sure what's going on. So we're reaching out to folks now, uh, like you, in Paradise, or folks who use the, the, the trail network in Paradise. So this fellow, Tommy Marr, he wrote this post uh somewhere on, on the internet it says to the members of the community unfortunately as of today I'm no longer permitted to groom the trails located in the town of paradise it was never my intention to take work from the town I had the means to do what I could see what was needed and I was simply trying to help the community get out and enjoy outdoor winter activities I apologize for any inconvenience to the community members and the town of paradise Tommy, you don't owe anybody an apology so this private citizen had the wherewithal and the equipment to groom the trails to make it much more easy to navigate for it, whether it be residents of Paradise and folks who enjoy that trail network. So he was told he had to stop. Why? So does that mean that automatically the town of Paradise will pick up the slack left behind? Because this private citizen is unable to help the community in that fashion like about groom the trails? So if you're in Paradise, you want to pick that up. Let's do exactly that. I'm going to keep this story out there for a while because I think the implications are far-reaching. And this is regarding the human rights uh, case that was won by the Churchill family. Kimberly and Todd have been fighting this fight for the past 6 years, and as was deemed by the tribunal, that Carter Churchill, their son, 12-year-old Carter, was discriminated against from kindergarten to grade 3. His primary, his only source of communicate, well, primary source of communication is American sign language. He was in essence sitting in silence in a classroom with no delivery of American Sign Language, none of it being taught, and consequently, he was just there in body, not actually part of the education system. It's disgraceful. It really truly is. So doing a little bit better now in his new setting at East Point Elementary, even though there's still some concerns with the ASL proficiency of one teacher, but I think that the district now whether it be teachers, administrators, and the district, and I guess soon to be the Department of Education, we're blending in the English-speaking school district into confederation building, is what about every other student, whether they be exceptional, need to be challenged, or they need some additional supports? I think this is not only going to be a precedent-setting case across the country for children who are in need of ASL education, but for anybody else who needs a support. Because if we're going to continue with the model that we call inclusive and all of the support systems and the staffing is not in place to ensure that people have a fair shot at an equitable education, then we're failing individuals. We're failing kids. I mean, just imagine say it out loud. We're setting kids up for failure. So I do think that that ruling has much bigger implications across the entire gamut of the school system, the k-12 system, and should be recognized by post-secondary institutions as well. so, Let's take that on if you're so inclined. And sometimes you know you just roll your eyes and go, "What is going on out there?" So Smith's ambulances, all of a sudden, were hauled out of Whitburn. So apparently, it was the inability for okay. This from Kenneth Beard, the president interim CEO at Eastern Health. He says because of concerns for the former operator's ability to meet its obligations under the ambulance services contract. What that means, don't know. So the service is now being replaced by the department by pardon me, Eastern Health. But here's where you just wonder what is going on. Is some of the employees working on that particular ambulance service in Whitburn, they found out about, they found out about this on Facebook. What, how can that be? So I guess it happened very quickly, but sometimes the channels of communication are so deeply flawed and broken, you just have to once again wonder what is going on. So imagine, you were working on that ambulance, Logged into your Facebook, see whose birthday it is today, and bang, lost your job. So, anyway. And continuing on with some more healthcare, And this was always going to be the way for different communities. You know, we use similar examples repeatedly because we're in the news. And Bonavista sticks out because they've got major concerns with their emergency room, which will be open for, uh, maybe for some 19 days this month. And we heard the sad story where the family believes that 90-minute ride in an ambulance to Clarenville cost their father his life. Okay. So other municipal leaders are chiming in. So it's fine for the, uh, the, the city, the town of Bonavista, to offer up a cash incentive to recruit or to lure a doctor and a $1 service building lot. Okay. But other mayors are chiming in and saying this is basically pitting communities against each other. You know, communities have some role to play to ensure that they've got the upside for working and living in their town uh, in the ears of the department so they can create attractive recruitment packages. But for communities that don't have the money to offer financial incentives, they're absolutely right in saying now we've created a landscape where communities are pitched against each other. So for the communities that have the money, and in this case Bonavista, or what about if it's Gander or Grand Falls-Windsor or Corner Brook, or bigger communities that may indeed have some access to a financial incentive for a doctor, versus those who don't. So is it just the haves and the have-nots that's all of a sudden been created by this doctor shortage and the shortages across healthcare? As a matter of fact, there's shortages across the entirety of almost every industry in the country, which is unbelievable. You know, someone posted a, a story on my Facebook, or pardon me, my Twitter account this morning about the shortage of veterinarians, which has been long a concern in this province. But your thoughts and what do you think your community should do? I'm sure the residents of Bonavista, I would imagine, are side with Mayor Norman saying, let's do something as a municipality to try to fill the gaps. Eastern Health has approved funding for two doctors and two nurse practitioners, but funding is just money. Funding isn't a healthcare professional. We'll see how they do. But I think that's a big question that we can indeed be asking ourselves. What do you want your community and your community leaders to be doing on this front? And is there a downside? And quite likely there possibly is a downside. All right, uh, what do I got here? This scribble. Oh, yeah. Uh, interestingly or curiously, lots of email over the weekend about the TikTok issue. You know, the federal government banned it from government devices, the province of Newfoundland and Labrador followed suit. Some people are referencing this whole TikTok business. Even if it reduces the likelihood of a cyber attack, probably a good idea. I don't know why a government employee needs TikTok on the phone that you and I are paying for. I'd also like to know what the uh, cell phone bill is for the province and all public sector employees who get a phone. And is it a smokescreen to kind of steer people away from the foreign interference in federal elections? That story in Ottawa is dominating the conversation. I don't know what it means in your head or your world, but the Prime Minister is so clumsily handling this. You know, we will see politics play an active role here, but I haven't heard a really good argument as to why we should not have an independent public inquiry to find out exactly what's going on, whether or not be with China or anybody else, and the 11 candidates who were supported by the Toronto Consulate uh, representing Beijing. You know, who are they? What exactly was going on? And when did the Prime Minister know? And what should he have done versus what he did not do? I don't know why it's a bad idea to ensure that in addition to the Elections Canada review that is going to be undertaken, is that we wouldn't have this independent public inquiry. Losing, uh, even losing further uh, focus and integrity and the free and fair elections that we have to trust. You know, even if this was a free and fair election in 2021, there are questions. And so they should be addressed, and not by politicians, but someone independent of the political wrangling that unfortunately becomes a bigger part of it. And I heard that story quite quickly this morning about the provinces entertaining borrowing abroad, in particular in Europe. Two few years ago, that would have been absolutely spot on. Negative interest rates, what have you, but I'm not so sure there's much to that story, but if you want to take it on, you know what to do. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is at com. When we come back, let's have a great show to kick off the week. That requires your phone call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on line number two. Good morning, Diane. You're on the air.
2: Good morning, Patty. How are
1: you? I'm doing okay this morning. Thank you. How about you?
2: Oh, I'm doing very good, too. Um... Carter Churchill is on the news a lot, and I really feel so sorry for his mother and his father. That little boy was, his language was stolen from from him. He didn't have the opportunity. He should have been put in, the school for the deaf was closed, I think, by the time, in his time. That's right. And it was closed by a politician, our very dear Danny Boy. There was 92 students in a school for the deaf when Danny decided it wasn't worth keeping it open, so he closed the doors for 92 people who could have had an education, a better, you know, communication. I should say, American Sign Language. I don't know if you know, it's universal. You could go to Spain. If somebody in Spain knew sign language, they could, you could communicate with them.
1: That's right, yeah.
2: Yeah, I don't, a lot of people I don't think realize that it is universal. So poor little Carter sh- should have been given a person, anybody who's integrated in the regular school system was given a student assistant who had sign language and could teach Carter whatever the teacher was saying.
1: One, to one Well, absolutely. I mean, if the only way for Carter in this case, and I do think this story is bigger than just Carter or Churchill, and good on Kim and Todd for doing this over the course of six years and $93,000 later, I mean, if the only way the child can communicate is with American Sign Language, how is it even passable, how is it even reasonable for anybody in a position of authority to think it was okay that he didn't have a teacher who understood ASL for three years? I mean, it's tr- uh, for four years, from kindergarten right through grade three. It is really a disgraceful situation, and not everybody has advocates or champions as forceful as the Churchills to do what they did over the long course of six years and all that money. How many other families are out there feeling very similar pain or concerns and just don't have what the Churchills did, the drive, the fight, the cash to do it, you know, take it all the way to human rights? Uh, no, I think it's
2: disgusting, and I mean, you know, Get me going on the politicians for closing school for the deaf. But, I mean, you know, who are they to think that 92 people is not worth having a language? I mean, everybody's entitled to communicate the best way that they can. And sign language is what's for for, uh, poor little Carter, and it's... Uh, human rights, you know, was right, to, really right to do what they did. It was wrong.
1: Yeah, it, it was wrong. And then there was a story about accommodations required by, I believe, the young man's name was Sears. He had a hearing issue and uh, the way that Memorial University dealt with that. So I think these these discussions are impactful to a lot of families here in the province. And it's just unbelievable that, you know, we had to under, had to do what the uh, Churchills did to shine a light on it and hopefully to rectify it. And it hasn't even been fully rectified with the establishment of a, uh, a deaf classroom at East Point Elementary. There's two teachers, one of which is not proficient in ASL, so it seems like we've gone halfway. If the solution would have been having the School for the Deaf remain open, that makes sense, but of course... That also means that if you have a child that requires that type of service, maybe they have to move away as a young child to go to that particular school as opposed to having regional hubs where this is an offering. You know, So whether we can replicate the, the, the deaf classroom at East Point to another dozen schools so that people don't have to travel, you know, have their little child leave home throughout the course of a school year, just have access to a teacher that understands American Sign Language. There's just so much more to this as far as I can tell.
2: The only thing is, Patty, um, it's Newfoundland School for the Deaf, Newfoundland Labrador. There were people from all over the province and Labrador who went to that school for the
1: Deaf. Right.
2: And they had a dorm there. And on weekends, most of the children went home for the weekend and and holidays like Easter and, you know. uh, But they did get their education from the School for the Deaf. Now, my son was... Fortunate enough, he got his education there before it closed. And I was frightened to death because there was talks of it. Closing. He did manage to get it. And fortunately for him, he qualified for a cochlear implant. And I taught him how to read lips. So he ended up... Uh, Patty, I haven't got much more to say. but and okay. No, I'll end this on a little chuckle. Uh, if you went well just say for argument's sake just put the scenario uh, saw something that you didn't like or whatever and you were saying to somebody across the room you know look at that person over there blah 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 my son would know exactly what they were saying because he could read lips from across the room interestingly enough right? Fair enough but anyway um Probably not a nice statement to make, but the point is that sign language and is and very, very important, and it should never be denied to anybody um, at all.
1: I appreciate the time, morning Diane. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care.
1: Bye-bye. Uh, and very quickly, as noted by someone, look, I mean, foreign interference and meddling in elections is not new. I mean, we've been talking about Iran and Russia and China to some extent for quite a long time. I'm not so sure I've ever heard it to the extent where 11 candidates were being supported and funded by a foreign government. But my, the summary point is that if there's not another step to this, then if people are, and of course this all be based on political ideology, if people lose faith in elections, that's bad for everyone. It doesn't matter what party you support. That becomes a really untenable situation. Uh, let's keep going before we get to the break and go to line number one. Jason, you're on the air. Yes, hello, Patty. Hello.
3: Yeah, it's my first time
4: calling. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I, I'm calling basically because uh, I had a bit of a concern. Like, uh, I do have a mental illness, and um, basically uh, I was fired from my job uh, Friday past. <clears throat> and uh, I uh, I had an interview with the employer. He's from the mainland, and he basically told me I had a job, and he gave me a full-time schedule, a full-time job. And uh, basically I uh, I worked there for a couple of weeks. Like it was a contracted job out, like a security job okay. for, for a company. So uh, basically uh, I was uh, just doing my job like uh, I was being trained in, uh, I did everything I was supposed to do. They knew I had a mental illness. I disclosed that to them uh, during the interview and he never really said anything, but like he continued to go through the hiring process. Um, anyway, uh, I just get an email Friday, just, just all of a sudden, like I did everything there they told me to do. Like, you know, there's certain equipment you gotta wear, there's certain protection you gotta wear, there's certain procedures you gotta do. I passed the test I had to do to enter that company. Because everyone, not every contractor, like I was considered like a contractor as well, i got to pass a test to, to, to enter that company. And you got to get a certain percentage. And even the lady came over and helped me out to even get a higher percentage at the end of it, you know. So um, they they really tried to do what they could to seem like at first to help me. And anyway, like they had some troubles with their computers and that like was always going down. And I was at the desk and, you know, like I figured stuff out and I figured it all out on my own, even though I have a mental illness. And uh, you know, I was doing well at my job. I asked permission for everything, like you know, that I needed to do, and like asked questions, of course, because I was only there for like two weeks. And then all of a sudden, Friday, I get a uh, an email just saying, basically, "Oh, h- hello, Jason. I, h- I hope you're having a good day. By the way, you're fired." Like pretty much like that. Like it was just blunt. It was just like it just stumped me, right? And and I was like, I came back with an email to them saying. Well, like for one thing, I did tell the employer I had a mental illness, and I don't know if it has anything to do with that. And they say no, it got nothing to do with that. Of course, they're going to say that. But um, the lady that I was talking to beforehand, like the one that was kind of overseeing me, uh, she said that they're trying to implement uh, like uh, an information officer there, kind of instead of security person, like trying to like make it sound like well they don't need security there anymore. But the lady, when I came back to her and asked, well why are you firing me? She kind of said it was something I did on the site. So she came back with a different explanation, like lady from the mainland. So like someone from this company actually called uh, the contracting company and, and reported me for something. And the thing is like, I did everything there that I was supposed to do. I took my breaks the right time. I never, there's times I never even took my breaks. Uh, you know, like I can't, I can't recall one thing I did wrong. I was just starting there. I was just, just starting my training. Uh, it was only a couple of weeks, uh, you know, like to me, it would have been a nice gesture for them to, to at least said to me, sir, like, you know, maybe you're, you're not doing something right. If I did do something wrong, rather than just fire me, now I feel like I'm being discriminated against because I said to them, I said, well, you're saying is not a discriminative thing, but if that's the case, why did you just fire me and not explain to me? Because how do you know my disability, like, could have lead, led me to do something that, like, I probably shouldn't have done that I didn't realize I was doing. Right,
1: okay, so you're not quite sure of the reason or the rationale behind you being let go. So what are you hoping to get out of this phone call? Is there a question you have for me, or are you looking for some guidance? Well, or?
4: well, yeah, well yes, I do have a mental health advocate, but that was hard to get a hold of. Like, he is—I won't mention his name or nothing, but, like— uh, I do, uh, you know, like try to get in, t- in touch with him, and usually he he meets with me in emergency situations. I would like I got to go down to drop my uniform off today, and I would like almost him to be there with me. I did call a lawyer, and he's gonna. I got a consultation with him um, Thursday about this. I did call human rights, and I did call um, the labor board, and basically. Uh, uh, you know, like, uh, all that, you, what happens when you call them is you just got to leave a message, like, and they say, oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to you probably in two weeks, you know, so, like, this this is kind of ridiculous that, that they would say that, but, you know, like, it, it, it's just bit fuming, right? But, like, what can you do, right? You just got to follow procedure, right?
1: Jason, do me a favor. Once you have that legal consultation, I think you mentioned was on Thursday, let me know what happened there, because whatever... You know, advice I could give you here might be trumped by an actual lawyer with some experience in labor relations. Because one thing, one body you can go to is the labor relations board. Certainly, no immediate fix coming from that group. But let me know on Thursday after you speak with that lawyer exactly what that person said, and we'll take it from there. Right. How's that sound?
4: That that sounds that sounds fine. And uh, you know, like I, I would just uh, uh, like to be treated decently. You know, I mean, like anybody. I think, like if they, if I was to uh, leave them, they would want a two-week notice. That's that's what they told me. They said to that to me on the phone, uh, you know, right from the beginning. And and I think, like, the least they could have done to me was at least give me a two-week notice rather than just like, bluntly say, oh, you're fired. Like, they should have been at least not so cold and callous about what they done to me. You know what I mean? Like, I think that, I do. you know.
1: So here's what I, I want you to do. Let's go with that, Jason. On Thursday, after you yes. speak with the lawyer, you get back to me, let me know what went on, and we'll pick it up from there. How's that sound to you? Okay?
4: That that sounds fine. I'll give you I'll give you a call Thursday uh, after a lawyer's appointment, or or even Friday because the lawyer's appointment is around the same time. I think you I okay. Think I'm not sure. Let's uh, do that. Your show is on.
1: We're until on 12, uh, 12 uh, noon.
4: Twelve noon. Okay. Well, if it's before twelve noon, I'll uh, definitely give you a call back that day.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks for this. Good luck.
4: Okay. Thanks, Patty. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Okay. Right, bye bye.
1: All right. Let's take uh, a break. When we come back, uh, Mickey wants to talk about the town council out of Musgrave Harbour, and Judy's there to talk about Saint Vincent de Paul Food Bank. They're coming up here very shortly with losing their space. I believe it's at Corpus Christi, right? So all of a sudden now, they won't have a space to operate their food bank. We'll hear what Judy has to say after this as well. Don't go away.
5: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number three. Mickey, you're on the
5: air. Good
1: morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, How's you getting on this morning? I'm hanging in there. How are you doing?
6: Uh, no, what I called about uh, Patty. I guess you've heard. Uh, I don't know if you heard anything that's been going on out there in Musgrave with courts and councils and you know there's all sorts of things. On the go out there in the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, I know there was a councillor reinstated after a court decision. Yeah.
6: Yes. Yes. Now, what I want to talk to you about, Patty. Uh, last year, March of 2022. Uh, what happened? Uh, we had a protest out there against one of the council members. And uh, the protest we had uh, was a lot of lies, a lot of rumors floating around about this protest. And uh, I just, just want to clarify that uh, this protest was done peacefully. The councillor said that the RCMP had to park in his driveway to protect him from the protesters, which was a lie, Patty. The RCMP parked all 10 minutes, Course, not impede traffic, and said that was nothing wrong of what we was doing.
1: And so, what has been said any different? Like, uh, i not sure. Uh, what rumors
6: are flying. Rumors are flying around, Patty, uh, here in the community and out of the community, that uh, uh, we were aggressive and that uh, uh, the councillor's home, which is right across from the town hall, this protest took place in in the town hall parking lot which this councillor's home is across the road from the town off. And uh, the rumours were flying around that this councillor was actually afraid in his home and that uh, RCMP had to park in his driveway to keep us off his property.
1: What were you protesting?
6: Uh, we were protesting. That it all started there, Patty. Uh, <clears throat> this councillor took a letter that a person had uh, written and sent to our town office. With concerns, uh, which was, I guess, was about this councillor. And uh, this councillor took this letter home, posted it on his personal social media page, more or less to shame this community member.
1: And uh, so what's, the, what's this all about, though? I mean, give me a little bit more context so I can wrap my mind around it. What was the complaint about a citizen about, or the councillor, or what have you? Just so I know what we're talking about.
6: Okay. Uh, I'll just... Hello? I got on I got on social media, that was back in March. Uh, this counselor had a letter that a person of the community sent to the council a letter of complaint. Okay. So this counselor took this letter, posted it on his own social media page with a song written above it The more or less shame this member of our community. Are you, are you following
1: or are you lost? Yeah, I suppose, but I mean, when I don't know what, even what the complaint was about, I guess it's just, uh, it's fairly vague, but your your summary point here this morning, Mickey, is that uh, the the essence of your protest and the fact that you weren't aggressive and you weren't putting anyone in danger and you weren't spreading fear, that's what you want to clarify here today, am I right?
3: Yeah, so I'd like to
6: clarify that because it seems like uh, there's no one phoning in about what's going on out there in Musgrave because, I mean, there's a lot more to this, but I'm not involved with, a lot of it, but I was involved with this protest, right?
1: Okay. Well, as long as people have the uh, right to assemble and to protest, there's a right way and a wrong way to go about it. And if you're saying that it was peaceful and you had purpose and nobody was being uh, taunted or threatened or anything, fair fair enough by me, Mickey.
6: Yeah, I, I just want to clarify that up, right?
1: Oh, I appreciate that this morning. Anything else quickly?
6: Uh. Yeah, now this counselor was on a podcast the other night. I just want to clarify. Uh, he said that uh, the reason, uh, get it, get into the Vax Pass thing, he said the reason that uh, our town uh, put in this bill for a Vax Pass to enter chambers was to get rid of him, which was two other council members that wasn't vaccinated at the time when they passed this bill. Okay. Okay. No, I just want to clarify that too, right?
1: I appreciate the information and the time, me, so Mickey, thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right, uh, let's go to line number two. Judy, around the year. Hello? Hello there.
7: Hi, it's Judy.
1: Welcome to the program, Judy. Tell us what's going on over at the food bank.
7: Well, <clears throat> we knew that this was going to come eventually, but with the property being completely de- the sale going through and everything, we have until the 1st of May
1: to find somewhere else to operate the food bank. And so we're talking about the sale of Corpus Christi Church, right? Yes. Okay. So how long have you been uh, operating out of that church, out of St. Vincent de Paul? Oh, my God. Probably over 30 years. Is that right, eh? Yeah. We're in that particular building for the last 22 years. And so, you know, are you paying a rental fee to the church, or was this always an in-kind?
7: This was always an in-kind. The uh, building was built through an ins- through insurance for us, and it was on church property, but we never... We don't own the property. We did never owned it, the property or had any legal claim to it. So the you know, the food bank is on the property so it was it was sold with the church I mean we're the implications looking for somewhere to move to in the area and like we have about a little over a thousand square feet there that we're
1: utilizing. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, is what kind of footprint do you occupy? And that's, that's satisfactory, is it? Uh, a thousand square well, feet? Well, we could use another little bit of space, but
7: yeah, that we, need, we need that much there to uh, be able to fit. Like we have a lot of deep freezes and coolers and stuff like that that we have to fit in. So we would need definitely need a thousand square feet, and we could use probably use up to 12 to 15. And you need it for free. Well, hopefully yes because if we had to start paying rent, that takes the money out of that takes the food money that we have and when the church closed down, we lost all those donations too because once a month we used to get an envelope from parishioners of donations and that basically kept us going from month to month. Now we don't have that anymore. We have very, we do have a couple of parishioners that still Drop us off a donation, but we don't have the
1: volume that we had before. So, do you need to be in this in a similar area as you are now? Well, yes, because
7: most of the people that come to our food bank, a lot of them walk. So, there's a bus stop like just outside on Waterford Bridge Road, and they bus or whatever. Some arrange rides before they come, but. We really need to be in this area. There's a real need for it in the area. Like we we
1: service up to 200 plus a month, and those numbers have grown over the last those few numbers years. Have grown. All right, so leave it with us, Judy. So for folks out there who have property in the west end of the city, if you've yeah. got, now, op- we do have we do have uh, Tom Osborne's office looking for for us,
7: and we do have city councilors Jamie Korav and Carol Ridgley who are, have offered to get the word out for us, too. But we don't have a lot of time, so that's why we're appealing to the public now to see if there's any, any space that somebody has that we can utilize.
1: Okay, and I know a couple of realtors uh, that do a lot of business in that part of town. I'll also ask them to just put their ear to the ground or maybe give me some idea about who we might be able to approach. So if you have a piece of property in the west end of the city, 1,000 square feet up to maybe uh, as much as 1,500 square feet that the folks at St. Vincent de Paul could use, maybe yeah. to negotiate some sort of fee if it's, on, it's, if it's unavailable for free or in kind. So yeah. please do contact us or contact St. Vincent de Paul directly over at Corpus Christi Church. Do you want to give us your number, Judy? 364-4116. Uh, four, yeah. four, one, one, There's three. a
7: message manager there, so you can leave a message and that's checked pretty much every day.
1: Judy, keep me in the loop. I know you have my email address, and I have spoken to Councillor Corab off-air about this as well, but if you give me an update, and if I have one for you, I'll be sure to reach out.
7: Okay, thanks very much.
1: You're welcome, Judy. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we go back, we're talking about China's involvement or meddling in the most recent federal election in 2021. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Colin, you're on the air.
8: Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning?
1: Not bad. How about you?
8: Pretty good, thanks wanted to uh, get into the uh, controversy surrounding the Prime Minister and the uh, fallout from China spying on our federal elections. Uh, Specifically, uh, I want to start off with uh, Mr. Trudeau is just steadfastly refusing to call a public inquiry into this matter. And and the question, the longer he keeps doing that, we're we're maintaining that position. Uh, The question arises, I think, uh, as to... Why are you Why are you stalling and what do you have to hide?
1: It's all just very clumsy. This issue is important. Look, I, if you're a staunch liberal supporter, you're uh, squarely in uh, the prime minister's corner, fair enough. But even if you just tried to step back for a second, what if the shoe was on the other foot? We can just ditch all the partisan sniping at this moment? Because even if we just learn a very clear and recent example from the United States... If we have a lack of faith or further erosion in the trust in elections, it's bad for everybody. It doesn't matter if you like Trudeau or Poliev or Singh or May or anybody else on the political spectrum. That's the problem here, is that those that rhetoric will overtake reality. So there are questions, and it does include what the prime minister knew and when. It does include how such... Unbelievable. Now, there is such a thing as a righteous leak, but leaks coming from intelligence agencies also have to be considered in this conversation. So, there is a collective issue here that can only be addressed, I would suggest, with an independent public inquiry. You know, committee hearings on this are completely useless.
8: Yeah, I agree. Uh, Parliamentary committee hearings get bogged down, and uh, they're partisan, uh, obviously, because of their nature. The people who sit on those committees are the uh, MPs. And... um, you know, I I think we need to look at a broader um, picture here of our intelligence services in Canada, given uh, that over the last 20 years or so now, with the advancement of artificial intelligence and uh, algorithms and and uh, quantum computing and things like that, I, I think we need to revisit uh, the whole Csis Act, which was uh, formulated in the early 1980s, and Csis was came to being out of a, a Royal Commission of Inquiry, also. I think it was called the uh, the McDonald Commission around 1984. So CSIS uh, has been in existence now for almost uh, 40 years. But I think we need to uh, revisit the whole intelligence apparatus in this country. And uh, specifically, I think we need to have a foreign intelligence service uh, operating on behalf of the government of Canada, much like the Americas have the CIA and the British have uh, the secret intelligence service. SIS, also known as uh, MI6.
1: Right, You know, intelligence and intelligence gathering and sharing, I mean, we're a member of a group called Five Eyes. So that's Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the States, uh, and the UK. And, you know, the world is changing so quickly, and it's interesting that, you know, updating and modernizing uh, legislation, whether it be governing CSIS or otherwise, technology is moving forward at a breakneck pace. Yep. Now, I don't know, I can't speak to exactly what goes on in the intelligence community because it's very much cloak and dagger to this day, but legislation regarding technology, how we use it, who's using it, who's offering it, what they do with data, how it's disseminated and stored, these are things which the governments are really moving at a snail's pace when technology is the exact opposite.
8: Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And, uh, you know, our lack of a foreign intelligence service, uh, we don't have, uh, uh, you know, human assets uh, in foreign countries, gathering intelligence on behalf of Canada, so we would get the, if we did have those uh, assets on the ground in foreign countries, uh, adverse that are adverse to us, like China and Iran and Russia. Um, that information would come back to the government of Canada firsthand. It may it may not be accurate, it may not be you know maybe hearsay, maybe secondhand, but at least we get a direct link from that asset to the government of Canada. Right now, any anything we gather overseas. Uh, with, with uh, uh, human assets on the ground. Uh, it's, it's going to be filtered through uh, the CIA or the British or one of our other allies. So we're not going to get uh, you know information that's in our best interest. It's going to be filtered through an American lens or a British or, or the French or the Australians or something like that,
1: right? I suppose. I don't pretend to know exactly what goes on inside that world. My spy craft is rusty. So I, I just don't know. But I do know that, you know, even if we just look at specifically, look, meddling in elections and attempts to meddle have been long a part of the uh, electoral reality here in the States and in the UK and in Germany and in Canada. It's This one just takes on a different air. And I think it's because, basically, the American experiment here. We can learn from them. A very clear lesson. If you allow these stories to go uh, uninvestigated, in a proper fashion, in a proper form then people are just going to believe what they want to believe. And unfortunately, that will be based on what party they support. And that has a widespread negative impact on the electorate. We already have an apathetic population, so if we just add to that by refusing to address this in wh- what I think would be the appropriate form, then we're just making a problem that's going to have pro- going to make it a, uh, an issue for every single voter regardless of who you support. This is a it's not a 10% teapot, this is a reality that can't be dealt with. And the Prime Minister should probably stop trying to clumsily tiptoe around this one, you know, for the betterment of the democratic institutions. Forget their own political failings and political aspirations, and I know that they won't do that because that's their role in life as politicians, but that's going to hurt us. I'm telling you, if you look down the road, that is not going to be helpful. Uh, Last word goes to you, Colin.
8: Yeah, I agree with you. It's uh, his refusal to call a public inquiry and put uh, everything under the spotlight, you know? um only only will uh, give rise to misinformation and disinformation and people will start drawing their own inferences from the from the informational or data gap you know if they're not getting the information they're going, people are going to start making this up and then, and then the chinese and the russians and our other malign actors uh will start putting stuff on the internet and and through other means to fill in those gaps for us
1: oh yeah absolutely you it's know? just too easy
8: and and not all this stuff is going to be uh put out in the public if you call it a public inquiry uh it'll have to be all these people involved in that will have to have top secret security clearance but uh and not and obviously not all of this information is going to be made public but the stuff that's not made public at least we will have people in there with, with the clearances and with the credentials to uh to filter through this information and and give a give a uh, an unclassified report to the canadian people right
1: I appreciate the time thank you thanks By Collins. And the story is bigger than just the Liberals or the Tories or the Dippers. And on this front, you are going to hear from the NDP more and more about walking away from their supply agreement that they have with the federal Liberals. Maybe that'll be what pushes the government over the top to do something versus just what they're banging this around as if it's a big nothing burger, as people say. And maybe it is in large part. I don't know. But I'd like to know. I think we all should know. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're talking about gas. And there's a caller looking for an update, uh, a call from Peter about a lease. And then someone wants to talk about the Churchills as well. And then we're going to speak with you on the topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Linda Swain has entered the chat.
5: Your calls on the drive home. News talk on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's see here. Let's go to three. Lindy, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Good morning to you.
9: How goes the battle? It's a battle. <laughs> it's a battle. i got a couple of items. Uh, one, the first one, Pierre Polybre, uh, uh With his advertisement there, he says that uh, if he wins the election, the next election he will cancel the gas tax.
1: Carbon tax, yep. Yeah.
9: Carbon tax, right? Yep. But he doesn't say win.
1: Well, I don't know when two he's years, one year. <coughs> he's certainly you know? running hard on it. I would imagine if the the Conservatives are successful, that you'll see that carbon tax go by the wayside very quickly. And it you know, it's probably going to be a winning message in some people's minds. I will add though, in the last federal election, some 66 or 67% of Canadians voted for a party with a climate plan. So, it's one thing to axe the tax as he says in the commercials quite another to have a plan to deal with anything regarding climate change, which I don't really know. They kind of talk about incentives for things like carbon capture and what have you, but not really a whole lot yet to be known.
9: Right. I was was wondering because it has to go through the House of Commons, that that would be them, and then it it has to go through the the, uh, Senate. Uh, I was wondering, you know, how long is this going to take?
1: Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, it could be done as simple as it is in a budget. So it, it wouldn't have to take as long as, you know, some brand new pieces of legislation that require royal assent and all the rest of it. It could be just be in the budget.
9: Okay. That's good for that one. Okay. Now, the next one is, is something that I've never seen, uh, that I can ever remember in my 83 years since I've been in Quarterbrook. Gas stations all ran out of gas. When? The weekend. Really, eh? Yes, sir. A Canadian Tire gas station was closed altogether, totally out.
1: I did not know that. I wonder what happened with the an interruption in delivery. That's a that's a good one. I'll try to see what I can find out here, but I didn't know that gas stations were uh, out of gas out in the west coast.
9: Yes, sir. I went down to the Irving station down by by Bullard, by, by Kruger, and they had their they had one lot of gas left. That was their uh, ultra. And they were selling that at the regular, uh, uh, what do you call it, price. Ralph, it for the, regular gas.
1: Yeah, the regular unleaded, sure.
9: Yeah, they, that's what they were selling it for. That's all they had.
1: Were they able to tell you why they were short on gas? Uh,
9: they said something about the, uh, the, the uh, supply, whatever. Yeah, so
1: like was there a weather interruption in supply or I something?
9: Know. I don't know.
1: I'll see what I can find out.
9: Yeah, because we don't we don't get any from North Atlantic anymore, as far as I know, do we?
1: Well, North Atlantic still does some distribution. Some of the people talk about the five cents, right? That's what uh, gets uh, discussed on this front. That five cents, and I think there's more than one set of five cents that goes out the door, that's paid to Silver Peak for importation and distribution, and they were the group behind Come By Chance.
9: Right, but are they still making gas? No. No, I didn't think so. That's what I'm saying. That we don't get gas from, from those guys anymore, from North Atlantic.
1: Well, here you go. Here's an update from someone who knows. The uh, The boat was stuck in the ice, and consequently, the delivery of gas to Cornerbrook uh, wasn't on schedule. So they made it late Friday, and now it looks like they're back in order. Back uh, in action. I see, sir. Yep.
9: Very good. I can't see how they were stuck in ice, though. We had two icebreakers in there.
1: Well, they were stuck because we were reporting on it here. There was a, a bunch of different ports that ha- saw marine traffic slowed because of ice. Okay. Yep.
9: Okay, fine and dandy.
1: Appreciate it. Well, Thanks. I was
9: just more, like I said, the first time I ever seen it that I can ever remember.
1: Yeah, I don't remember a gas shortage in this neck of the woods either, but, you know, that's one of these, other, it's another one of those issues regarding our reliance on bringing stuff in versus producing here. Uh, good to have you on, Lindy. Take care. Thank you. You too. All the best. Yep. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number two. Lisa, you're on the air.
10: Good morning, Patty. Morning. I'm just calling. A couple of weeks ago, you had a young man phone in, and I'm just curious if you were able to help him or what was uh, his issue. Um, he he was very upset, and uh, he was trying to, I guess, uh, discuss what was going on. I, I couldn't get out all the details. Whether he was nervous or had some type of, you know, verbal dyslexia, I don't know. Like he just couldn't tell you. But he was talking about his mother and saying that she had passed away and that uh, uh, he was on the lease with his mother and that he was very upset. It sounded like he might be evicted or something because his mother had passed and it was only himself, and uh, he was calling, you know, different ministers and different people to help him, and he was just in a panic. And you were asking him to clarify, and the poor young man just couldn't, I guess, in his seen upset.
1: Yeah, I remember the call.
10: I was just wondering, was there anything that you could do to help him, or did you figure out what was going on?
1: Well, if I remember the call correctly, and if it's the proper, the right call, is I asked him to just send me an email with a few more details, so I, so he had a chance to collect his thoughts. Because I didn't really know exactly what he needed. So unless I know that, it's kind of hard for me to point him in the right direction. Whether he needed a social worker or something, I don't know. But he never sent along the email. And if he does, I will absolutely follow through. He, He said he would. So I don't know what the status of that is. Because I really didn't know exactly what he was getting at. And Sometimes
10: people with communication problems, they just can't get it out. You I know? get it, yeah. And uh, I was just wondering, you know, whether you know, he could send you something in point form or something like that just to figure out. Because I have to tell you, I cried <laughs> when I was listening to that young man, and I don't know why, but it really got to me.
1: It got to me, too. Like many of the calls that I field here uh, do the exact same thing to me. So I will, like Stephen, I believe his name was Stephen, if uh- I... Peter or Stephen? Okay. I thought it was Peter. Peter or but Stephen. Yes. If you're the gentleman who made that call, please do follow through with an email because I absolutely will do what I can for him. So, uh, you know, I just need a couple of more details about, and he doesn't have to offer any more uh, personal information than he's comfortable with. That's completely up to him. But if he sends me that email, I can guarantee Elisa that I'll follow up with him.
10: Yeah, because it worries me, you know. Me too. It's, you know, I look at it, Patty, and I say, that is tomorrow's homelessness. You know, that is someone who's going to end up, if someone's not there to help them, whether he has some type of learning disability or some type, of, I'll put it as verbal dyslexia, you know, he can't communicate. Um, it just worries me. And, you know, this is where we are, isn't it? We Like, you know, today they're okay, tomorrow they're on the street. 100%. What do you do then? And you can't, it's harder to get someone back off the street, I'm sure, than it is to keep them off the street. And, you know, a country, you know, when you're looking at the possibility of homelessness for some of these people, for people. um, You know, it seems like there's not a lot of hope. And when a country doesn't have hope, what do you have?
1: Yeah. So
10: I I worry for for people like that.
1: Yeah, you make a good point. It's harder to get them back into a uh, safe a uh, healthy place to live versus, you know, just do what we can to keep them there before they end up on the street. So maybe what I'll do, maybe some of the pressure of being on the radio live I also contributed to it. So I suppose maybe I should call him back and see if I can't get him. And, you know, the email would be helpful then because I, then I could help connect him directly with folks who might be able to offer him whatever type of supports he actually needs. So I appreciate you putting that back on my front burner, and I'll follow up. I think I'll give him a call after the show anyway. But if he's listening, please do send that email so that I can do the uh, required follow-up.
10: Thank you, Patty, because I, I don't have time every day to listen to the show. So I was just wondering if anything had come about it. But, no, I, you know, I think that would be really really cool if you could do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I just need more info, like I said, and I will do what I can. Of course I hesitate to make anybody any promises on that front, but I do follow up as much as I possibly can throughout the course of the day and the week. So thanks for this. Appreciate this, Lisa. No problem.
10: Take care. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. You too.
1: Bye-bye. Very quickly before we get to the break, I want to Give a quick shout out and a happy birthday to Dorcas Upshall. She's out in Little Harbor East celebrating her birthday today. Apparently, she listens to the show all the time. So, Dorcas, hope you have yourself a terrific birthday. And that's coming from, well, I've got one from Lillian, and I'm guessing this is from Marie, probably maybe your sister. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about transatlantic flights, the Churchills, healthcare, and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. And welcome back.
11: Let's go, line number one. Vic, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and your listening audience. Same How to you. How are you this morning? Very well. How about you? Very well, thank you. I wish to congratulate and thank the Churchill uh, family for bringing their case to Human Rights Commission and winning their case. I know it's been a long fight for them, and I certainly appreciate what they've done for all the, uh, the hearing period in. Uh, I guess children in our schools. The only you know thing I'm worried about now, I wonder, will this really be? I haven't read the decision by the Human Rights Commission. I haven't had a chance. I want to actually, but I understand the child wasn't, uh, needs wasn't being met under our school, present school system. I'm just wondering now how they're going to implement implement this, or uh, will will you know will it really be, uh, uh, I guess, changed as it should be. The other thing, I think people that have children who had a hearing impaired should now speak up and certainly ensure that uh, this uh, decision will be followed through. The other question I have now, uh, I think we have some other areas in our school system certainly that should be looked at. One I think I brought up before was the uh, French Immersion Program. There's there's children who are are unable to get in this program because uh, I don't think it exists in every school district. I noticed they've uh, uh, recently approved the French immersion class, I think, in Stephenville. My view is uh, we should have a uh, French program in all the schools from kindergarten to grade 12, and that program should be certainly equivalent to uh, French immersion. Uh, so I really you know those so really the question would be now why you know why don't we have a, a, a comprehensive French program in our, in our day school system for every child?
1: It's a staff issue uh, quite simply so I mean there's not every school has French immersion you're absolutely right, especially early French immersion. The folks down in the Marystown area were spared. They'll continue, I believe, with their French immersion at that school. I can't remember the name of the school now, Sacred Heart maybe. And then the folks out in Stephenville, they will indeed have a French immersion uh, offering again next year, which is reassuring. Their numbers had a big uptick after it made headlines in the news. But it is as simple as we don't have enough french teachers to offer early immersion in every single school plus there's always going to need to be a certain number of students enrolled or planning to enroll in early immersion to justify it and that's not my words that's the district so that's the basics of it we just simply don't have the staff to take it on
11: uh, but yes uh, I, I, of course well we're hearing that now we're hearing too much in Newfoundland, but we don't have this. We don't have staff for this or that. Well, I mean,
1: realistically, if you only have one child who wants to have early French immersion, you probably can't have a French immersion program.
11: Uh, yes, but uh, Patty, you know, uh, uh, anybody that's bilingual in this country, we we're we are a bilingual country, and I found that if you're bilingual, well, it's certainly a a plus plus in, in uh, you know obtaining employment, and uh, we should be. Uh, there's no reason why a uh, a child can't come out of high school with uh, be bilingual from a course that's given every day in school. You know, this is this is the problem. We have too much. You know, every we're making excuses on everything. I heard the, the comment this morning. I think uh, the school in Fogo uh, had shortage of staff. They can't. They I think they couldn't open. I mean, you know, this is really too much. Everything I see now here in Newfoundland, and most uh, complaints I'm hearing, we do not have staff in mean, the nursing We hear about the, nurse, the healthcare system, now the school system. I mean, I th- all, we also had some cutback or a lack of funding. I think there was some reduced funding in our in our libraries here in Newfoundland. Heaven forbid, why are we back? Going, why are we going back back to the pot otter days? We need to be. be uh, we cannot have an of education in, in Newfoundland yeah let's, okay uh, but we, we, the department of Education or the minister of Education come off it you know let's 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 get on the ball and and, and get you know our kids or our children educated you know and that also applies to I see a comment. I'm a university professor in the, Department of, the faculty of education at Mon. Well, I think Mon has to get on the ball, too, in the faculty of education and see why uh, the first-year students in math are not doing that well in Memorial University. You know what I mean? That's been yeah, going,
1: on going on forever going since I. Okay, Vic. All right, it's been going on since I took math ten ten. More people it, failed it than okay, passed Okay,
11: the it. faculty of education at Memorial University are producing teachers, aren't they? So if you got a problem within the school system, you had to look at the faculty of education. What kind of, you know, what what what's the caliber of, uh, of uh, education students they produce, and also. Well,
1: you know I don't yeah. think it's caliber issue, but you can't force people to get an education degree, uh, and I do think there is legitimacy to. You know, needing X number of students to sign up for early immersion to create an immersion program, because you'll have okay, a full.
11: Okay, t- well, I'm not speaking of the, I'm, the immersion. Let's do away with the immersion pro- French program and have a, a comprehensive one in in the day every in, for every grade, in in, 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 in in from kindergarten to grade grade twelve. That's my, that's my view, because what you're doing now, you're still, still to my point of view, the, emergent, the emergency French program is really, uh, they're discriminating against the other students. Because I understand what? the students couldn't get into, well, it's not all across Newfoundland. So my point of view, if you can't have a, a French program for every stu- student in Newfoundland, you shouldn't have an emergency French program. This is my view. It's the same applies to the. Uh, I think I've been on open line several times, and certainly the NDP opposition leader, who is now retired, about the uh, school for the deaf. They should have never flowed that school. So what, okay. You know, had the point we had to point we had to get a look at look at the Department of Education, and, and for them to also cut back on the funding in, in, in the library. I mean, really, that's really a, rec, a regressive step, you know. So, in a minute, and I, I, well, the minister—I wonder who the Minister of Education is now. But certainly, I mean, I was I was shocked to see that they cut back on library funding here in Newfoundland heaven forbid. Yeah,
1: that was a while ago, and that got us a, a huge uh, yes, negative I'm reaction. That, Vic, I appreciate know. the time. I'm going to take yeah, another call here now. Hill. Bye now. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go line number five. Sheila, you're on the air.
12: Good morning, Penny. How are you?
1: Not too bad. How are you doing?
12: Good. Go. Penny, I just wanted to bring something up, because I know this is in the news on CBC News again today about the Newfoundland government trying to lobby airlines on the other side of the pond to pick up the routes like from here to Ireland or England, you know, the U.K., and in the article it said that Fury and Steve Crocker, who's the Minister of Tourism, I think, were pitching Aer Lingus That's and right. Condor, and Condor, which is a German airline, I understand, to sort of, you know, think about picking up those flights. Anyway, so it was this fall, and I was reading in a U.K. newspaper about this new airline, That was going to start flying out of Ireland. To it was called Fly Atlantic. That's the name of the airline. Belfast based. It would be flying from Belfast up along the eastern seaboard of Canada and the United States. I thought, wow, this is great, right? And I actually emailed the CEO of that airline to ask him, like, do you think YYT or St John's would be added to that? Their flight plans, and he said well, everything's under development at the moment. It's all on the table,
7: blah blah blah.
12: But he was engaging, you know. He he went back and forth on it a little bit. So all to say, this morning when I saw this article, I emailed Steve Crocker, and I sent him that same article that I read a few months ago. I think it was November, and also the CEO of um, Atlantic. His name is Andrew Pinn his email, his contact information. I just don't want this to be another missed opportunity, Patty, because it takes a long time for airlines to decide to put delay on a flight. It's not just a snap
7: decision.
1: No. And it does require uh, it does require more established airlines sometimes to pick up a route, especially when we talk about the potential passenger volume that we can provide here. So yeah. I don't know if Fly Atlantic, you know, is going to consider what in the big scheme of things, there's a much smaller international airport than other options they have available. So we'll see. And Condor, I mean, they're already doing direct flights from Frankfurt to Halifax and other Canadian cities. So they're in the business. Aer Lingus, of course, is in the business and has a long established track record. I don't know much about uh, Talk Atlantic, but I'll be happy to have another no, look at Fly it. Atlantic.
12: Or fl- Fly Atlantic. Or Fly Atlantic. Fly Atlantic, Yep. Yeah. And uh, they're, they're, sort, you know, they're developing where they're going to go. And, of course, there's always cost-benefit analysis to it. I remember when WestJet pulled the uh, St. John's Dublin Flights off, nobody was felt sadder than me. I took that flight many times, enjoyed it every time. And I uh, emailed the uh, he was CEO of WestJet at the time to express how disappointed I was and why did they do that. He said, simple, it came down to numbers. There weren't enough bums getting in seats at the Torbay Airport to, to for them to justify landing here.
13: Yeah.
1: the Are you talking about WestJet, Dublin? Yes. Yeah, the seat count went up year over year.
6: Pardon it got, me? Sorry.
1: The, they sold more tickets on that flight year over year, all the way up to when it eventually ended up in Halifax, and they've since lost it now as well.
12: Yes, I know. You can't get out of eastern Canada to Europe at all. Well, that's a lie. I think there's a flight out of Halifax to Heathrow every day, I think. Uh,
1: the flight from Halifax goes to uh, Gatwick. I know, because I took it over the summer.
12: Okay, they go to Heathrow too, Patty, if you go in, on, uh, you know, that departure's arrival thing with Halifax Airport, it does say Heathrow.
1: Maybe Air Canada, but uh, WestJet only had provided service to Gatwick. Well, at, at least that was the case over the summer when I booked that yeah, No, that, that,
12: that was Air Canada. You're right. It's yeah. Air Canada, there's a daily flight too. You're flying over Ireland to go to England, right? You're still backtracking if you go to England. To get to
1: Ireland. Yeah, I mean, even just going to Halifax to turn around and go to Europe, you know, flying over your own home is kind of frustrating. Uh, the time before well, that, when we did it, we went to counterintuitive to, to for
12: Toronto. traveling, right? Pardon? I said, it's counterintuitive to travel, to backtrack, like to go fly to Toronto, to go to Dublin makes no sense to me if I'm in St. John's,
1: right? Understood. I've experienced it. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning. Anything else, Sheila?
12: That's it, my friend. Thanks Talk for the call. Soon. Thank you. You're okay. Welcome.
1: Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, so, a couple of quick ones. So, gas was in short supply in many spots. Listener says that they ran out of gas in Deer Lake, Lacey, Bay Vert, Badger, Burlington, Middle Arm, just to name a few. And, of course, all because there wasn't a tug to help the tankers land with the ice conditions. Okay. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going out to Bonavista. Don't go away.
5: Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Apparently, Kane's Quest, which was on hold because of weather, is now back on the go. The rain is holding off. Let's see here. Where am I going? Line number six, say good morning to the PC member for Bonabista. That's Craig Party. Craig, you're on the air.
14: Good morning, Patty, and thank you very much for taking my call. Happy to do it. Before we uh, before I raise and discuss the health care um, uh, on the bottom of the peninsula, I'd just like to give a shout-out to all those athletes from Newfoundland and Labrador who competed at the, um, the the Canada Games. And in particular, I just want to focus on our bronze medalist skaters that um, have connections or are from this district. Uh, Mark Butt and, and Lily Evans, who won the gold medal after their long program in um in skating. Uh, Mark is from Bloomfield, and Lily Evans, uh, we compassionately adopted her. She's from Pooch Cove, but uh, her mom, Joan, uh, her parents, um, uh, Gary and Evelyn uh, Monks in Kings Cove, are uh, very pleased, and being part of the district, we've sort of compassionately adopted Lily as well. But we're very pleased. And one thing I would like to mention, uh, is the fact of the commitment that these athletes make, and I'm sure there's a story behind every one of them. I look at Mark Butt from Bloomfield three times a week. Patty, he would drive to St. John's, usually his mother chauffeuring him in as a Grade 11 student at at Heritage Collegiate, three times, and the distance from Bloomfield to St. John's one direction is about 230 kilometers. And that is a significant commitment to be making year after year after year in order to hone your skills. And to know that he would uh, he'd achieve at this level, him and Lily, um, is a ringing endorsement of his commitment. And like I said, I give a big shout out to all those participants because it's a story behind each and every one. And we are very proud of them.
1: Uh, And so you should be. So a bronze medal in pairs figure skating is absolutely brilliant performance out of the Canada Games, which brings on an untold pressure that they've never experienced before. So good on everybody who, you know, all the participants, especially those who brought home a medal, because you are competing for some of the hardware. So bravo. And I tell you what, you know, it's one thing to to qualify for the games because there are certain disciplines where you have to hit a certain benchmark or time or what have you to qualify for the games. Others where you have to try out for the team. The churn to make a Canada Games team can take as long as two years. So you could be traveling all over the province for a couple of years and not even get to the Games. So the commitment is massive. And I know it might sound like I'm talking about Jack all the time when we talk about that, but it took him two full years to make the volleyball team to compete in Winnipeg in 17. And they traveled, I'm telling you, they had camps in Gander and Clarenville and here in town and all, all the, the folks out in Clarenville that making their way in here every second weekend. I mean, it was a lot.
14: Petty, a huge, huge commitment, and like I said, when they come out to be the tops amongst the tops in the, in the nation, that that is uh, is outstanding. Yes, sir. Uh, healthcare on the Peninsula. Unfortunately, this week now our ER is closed again. Uh, Petty, we all know it's complex. Recently, on Wednesday night past uh, the rally line organizers had a public meeting, 450 to 500 uh, people that shared stories. They range from all over a region that, uh, of about 8,000 population of which this hospital serves. So we're not talking about an isolated area. We're talking about a region of which do not have access to emergency room staffing. And again, we know the complexities across the nation and internationally. The only thing that this rally line and many people have expressed, and I agree, is that we ought to have the same level of remuneration for the emergency room as what we would have for the hospitals uh, that would be providing care in the province. Uh, we know that that is not going to fulfill everything and, and assure us that we're going to have, um, you know, have physicians that are covering our emergency room when it's needed. But we do know that it's going to give us a better chance at securing somebody and to make it um, to make it possible. I am thinking that the government would think, and thus the debate that ought to happen, is that what the remuneration is for Bonavista ER is fair and probably um, suffice as to what the incentives that they they did increase. Again, I would say that we give out bursaries for medical school residents to go into more rural areas. We 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 give them those incentives. I would think that at minimum we ought to have parity with those hospitals. And if I may share one thing, Patty, before you can input on it, is that I, I sat in a meeting at a hospital at one time when uh, Dr. Parfrey and Sister Davis were Zoomed in. We were talking about the Health Accord. Uh, there, there were approximately, um, I would think, probably 10, 11 physicians that were around that table, majority specialists. And one spoke up to, um, to Dr. Parfrey and Sister Davis, and stated that when they looked at the emergency room in Bonavista, they would think that they ought to get paid more. Because, again, in his words, in stating, is that they do practice in isolation. And in other words we we often heard talk that you'll go into the larger hospitals the health sciences and yes they are busier, but for often you'll you if you're in there sometimes you'll hear a cold blue cold blue is calling other people to come in when you have a case that you know that is challenging and you want to pull all your resources in. You know that when you go to these remote and and more rural areas you're not going to have those cold blues, not to the extent because really you are almost in isolation with with you know, very few other available health care staff. So I would say the call of the rally line and most people at that, at that meeting is that we ought to have and the government should have parity that if an emergency room is regionalized serving a large area with the data that Bonavista would have, they ought to be at least receiving the same uh, wages.
1: Yeah, uh, fair enough regarding the rate of pay. I don't necessarily understand why there are locks on the doors. I mean, is there nobody inside that hospital that can offer some level of primary care, some level of triage before people hop in the car to go to Clarenville or hop in an ambulance to go to Clarenville? I mean, you don't need a doctor for everything, right? That's something we've been talking about a fair bit over the last number of years. So that's my ultimate question is if someone presents that needs absolutely the care of an emergency room doctor, then that person is going to have to go to Clarenville if the uh, Bonavista emergency room is not staffed. If they just need just if they need the services of a nurse practitioner or licensed practical nurse or a registered nurse, there some of them are there. So why is the door just completely barred as opposed to we do some actual triage before everybody in some form and in some mode of transportation ends up in Clarenville?
14: If we put other healthcare. Um, um residents that would be in a in a spot in order that are going to face some of the more serious cases that would come into the emergency room i know it's a daunting and especially if you know that you haven't been trained to the full degree like if you haven't had the airways training which i think would be a standard uh... necessity in order to operate an emergency room but when you state do we have to be able to treat and enhance Um, the level of care that we would have or give those people that are coming to the locked door a better chance, yes indeed. But that's something that's got to happen, I think, provincially that we need to have a look at. Uh, We look at virtual links that can immediately hook up to a a, a virtually, an emergency room physician. Uh, You can have that in every facility you know, without locking the door. And another thing, Patty, I think was a good thing in the health accord that they looked at, you would have uh, you know, we know that if you're coming from Trinity to Bonnevist Hospital, you've got 53 kilometers to get there. You've got to wait for an ambulance. In the Health Accord, we'll have an advanced care paramedic that will be on an ambulance. That's what the vision is and in the Alpha Accord. So, therefore, they would link in with an emergency room physician, and in your home, and even in the ambulance, you will have uh, care started and critical care that would be uh, would be necessary in a lot of these cases. So I would think is something the province would need to look into to make sure that. Listen, uh, I think where there's a will, there's a way. Someone asked me the, uh, this weekend: uh, Could an advanced care paramedic operate an emergency room? Uh, good question. By uh, credentials, I, I, I wasn't sure. Uh, by
1: credentials and accreditation, I've, it's probably no. But yep. I still think there can be some primary care, yep. maybe at all, not all, without an emergency room doctor, which is a specialized area of medicine. Uh, Craig, I appreciate the time. Thanks for this. Yep. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Craig Parity, the PC member for Bonavista. Let's go get an update. What's happening in the Labrador, the 3,500-kilometer trek as part of Kane's Quest with the chair of Kane's Quest. That's Chris Lacey. Hi, Chris. You're on the air. Hey, Dad. Patty, how's it going? Uh, awesome. You? Uh, Stressful, but awesome. Yeah, better now. So are the snowmobiles back out in, in, in action?
0: They should be any minute if they're not yet. We gave the release to go ahead at 10 o'clock. So as their times come up, and uh, based on layovers and, and holdups and stuff, they'll be going out any minute now.
1: So what was holding back? Was it the rain in the forecast?
0: Uh, the rain was part of it, but the... Deteriorating conditions in the night time and uh, not being able to see obstacles and stuff ahead of you. The wind conditions causing the sea ice to be breaking up and causing other things and obstacles downstream. So it was a whole conglomeration of things that we took into consideration to make the, the decision to post- postpone until daylight.
1: So uh, also mentioned in the news piece about... How much snow is or is not in certain spots? Describe the snow conditions because, you know, in my mind's eye, when I think Labrador in March, snow, not the problem. What are you seeing?
0: Uh, so locally for us, snow it has been way down from where we normally have. We Our total accumulation is definitely way down. Um, I personally haven't been down on the south coast, but in talks to the checkpoints, there is definitely... Half of us know what we're normally used to seeing. Like, it's definitely a lot less than what we're normally seeing. Um, ice was very late coming this year as well, but there, the ice did come, and we did get a lot of cold weather up here in Labrador and Maine and along the coast and stuff in the last couple of months. But uh, the conditions were, were nowhere near as favorable as they were being in the past. That being said, they're not unpassable. It just causes a, an extra challenge to the race that brings the endurance side of it.
1: If I remember correctly, inside the story said there's some 18 checkpoints. What happens at the checkpoints?
0: So, at certain checkpoints, we have what we call community express checkpoints. They go through those communities, and in there, they're required to stop for an hour for fan engagement, uh, nutrition stuff, and uh, just to be able to stand around and talk to the people, talk to the crowd, and take the fan engagement in and make sure that everybody gets uh, to be part of the race and feel like they're being part of the race. And then at the layover checkpoints there, that's where they're held for their mandatory 12-hour or eight-hour layovers, depending on what, tr- what checkpoint they're into, and that's where we require them to take a 12-hour break off the clock where they get time to have their well-deserved rest, well rest.
1: How do you approach making this decision? Because a safety is, of course, paramount. So does every checkpoint get a vote? Does every community chime in? Is there a process beyond just collecting information and at the, the leadership uh, level making a decision? How does it work?
0: Oh, it's 100% collectively all across the whole race route. So we last night we, and this morning, we when we made the decision to postpone it, we spoke to the racers that were in Cartwright. We spoke to the checkpoint in Cartwright. We spoke to the people in Port Hope. We spoke to the people in Rigolette. We spoke to everybody that was within that general vicinity, got an update, got what we could, and then that's when we made the decision to pause. And since then, this morning, we spoke to all ground search and rescue teams along along the whole route on the south coast from Rigolette right down to Lines Claire, all of our emergency personnel. Um, anybody that we can get a hold to that would chat with us, local people that knew the areas. We've had people go out and actually run the where they know the racers are going to be coming in and making sure conditions are okay and everything like that. We're in constant communication with everybody and anybody that we can to make sure that the conditions are still favorable for a race.
1: Well, let's hope that the decision made still provides a safe passage for all the teams. How many teams once again?
0: Uh, so We started with 29 and we had three scratched, so we're down to 27. Is it? Now, 27,
1: Well, hopefully, and, it, uh, hopefully they can pull it off at the rest. Last word goes to you, Chris. All right, thanks a lot.
0: And uh, just to put out there for the last thing is thanks for all the communities and all their stuff, to, for the hospitality and everything that they've done. The, everything, we couldn't ask for better people at our checkpoints in the communities. They put all the racers up, they made sure they're dry and safe and fed, and we just can't, can't thank them enough for all the, the support they're giving us during the race.
1: Appreciate the time. Keep us in the loop. All right. Thanks, Betty. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Chris yes, Lacey, bye. he's the chair of Kane's Quest. Break time. When we come back, Tom, let's talk about milk cartons. That's interesting. What about milk cartons? We'll find out. And then we're going to talk about bullying in school and what went on at the most recent Hospitality in Newfoundland and Labrador conference. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Yes.
13: Is this Mr. Daly? This is Mr. Daly. Yes, sir. Call me Patty. Go ahead. Patty. Yes. How are you doing today?
1: I'm not, I'm not too bad. How about you?
13: They're keeping you busy. Oh, well, not too bad for an old fellow boy. <laughs> uh, Mr. Ellie, I'm calling in about uh, uh, the milk cartons. Uh, I had to send my uh, home care worker over to one of the stores last week and pick me up two small pairs of ice grips in order to get the milk carton open. Uh, they uh, They very seldom... Use milk cartons in Newfoundland with a stopper on them, which would be more easy. I was speaking to a friend of mine there a couple of weeks ago, and my gosh, she had to cut her thumb off uh, using a carpet knife to try to get the the, the milk carton open.
1: So you mean just a regular two-liter carton of milk? Yes, sir. Couldn't get it open?
13: Why? What? They, they have them glued so, oh my God. Okay. It's torture trying to get them open.
1: Yeah, I opened one yesterday as a matter of fact. Uh, I don't recall having any big struggle with, but maybe different uh, different companies
13: are gluing them tighter than others, I suppose. Yes, sir, That that's about it. Now, I have another thing here. I was uh, uh, born in Carbonear, but we w- moved into Buckland in 1951. I think I was there 70 odd years. Uh, concerning Red Indian Lake. Yep. I think that's called uh, the Arctic Lake now, is it? I believe so. Yeah, well, that Red Indian Lake, sir, I don't know if I heard that word mentioned out of all my years in Buckens. I don't, I can't remember anyone saying we're going out to Red Indian Lake. It was always we're going to the lake.
1: Yeah, I, well, I, I suppose in one area if there's a. A popular destination. It might go by something as simple as the pond or the lake. And plus, when they the province said that they were going to look at renaming it, that came out of nowhere for me uh, as well. I don't recall anyone ever complaining about it.
13: No, that's true. I think it was Lisa Dempster from down on Labrador. She was the one that made the motion to change the name from Red Indian to Beartic, uh, uh, I think it was.
1: Well, yeah, they they said they were going to change it. To what they didn't know, they were going to do the you know the old consultations, as they say, to come up with a replacement name. But, again, some of these things about changing names and what have you, some of them come out of nowhere. Some of them are built on actual complaints that are levied by one person, one group or another. But the Red Indian Lake, that just happened out of nowhere to me.
13: Yes. Now, I have another thing here, and then I'm going to hang up. Go ahead. I'm with the, my cable company, is Eastlink. Okay. And I pay Eastlink... I think is $159 in tax a month. Now, 701, two, three, four, five, six and seven, that's sport channels. And lots of times, sir, as soon as they drop the puck, they cut me off. Now, I'm not the only one. I wonder what's going on there?
1: That's a blackout. And it happens uh, far too often for us cable paying customers. Like, for instance, in some regions, they black out the coverage of the local team basically because they're trying to make people buy a ticket to go to the game. And, you know, in some centers, it it makes no sense because you can't get a ticket in the first place. But that's a that's an organized blackout, and that's driven by the league.
13: Yes, and I called East Link, and I told him, or I asked him, I says, can I get a credit for those seven states every time you people cut me off? And he said, no, we don't have any control over that. That's the... Uh, NHL, I think, organizations.
1: Yeah, they drive that particular bus. That's true. Yes. Yeah, well, that's it for me for today, sir. I appreciate the time. Good luck with the milk cartons. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Yeah, bye. All the best. Bye-bye. Uh, Todd, hang tough. I'm going to go to line number one. Donovan, you're on the air.
3: Good morning, buddy. Morning to you. How are you?
1: Hang in, tough. How about yourself?
3: Uh, there's a little bit of stuff going on around with school way. Eh? schoolboy and stuff. Uh, See, my brother, he's a student in our school, and he went back to school in September, and uh, he's been being bullied ever since. And his principal would not do anything for him, so the other day, he ended up going and getting in a fight. And uh, so... The principal then decided that she was going to call the cops, Alan. And now he's looking at teachers and school boards still won't do nothing.
1: Okay, hold on. So they're calling the police on who?
3: My brother. Because my brother, right, he, uh, he ended up getting in the fight. And, of course, the, the only one that was in the fight, his mother's a school bus driver at the school. And the school won't do nothing to him.
1: Okay, so is the brother a child, or is the brother an adult?
3: The bro- my brother is a child.
1: Okay, so your brother, the child, started a fight, or just pushed nope. back against
3: uh, the other fella started the fight. Two of them the same age, okay. but looking at it as a his principal looked at it as if to say, "Well, he was in the fight." And so was the other kid, but his mom's a bus driver at school, and she didn't want to lose her staff. So, mom ended up calling the school board, and the school board still have not done nothing.
1: Okay, and so when were the police called, and what's happened? Has anyone been arrested?
3: Nope, my brother been brought in for questioning, but uh, other than that, uh, he's only 13, right? So... They're still waiting on to hear stuff back on what they what's gonna happen and everything yet, right?
1: Okay. So, what kind of bullying was your brother experiencing? Like, what were people doing?
3: Okay, he was a okay. One day, a lot of bullying was that he was being grabbed by the throat all the time, like physical, like being grabbed by the throat, hitting between legs, all that. And the school wasn't doing anything about it. <clears throat> so, that's a big problem around eh, right there, like, our school principal, it's, uh, she's more like, uh, she cares more about herself than she do her own students.
1: Yeah, so that's where I think sometimes we use, you know, words that maybe aren't really necessarily applicable. If you're getting kicked in the groin or choked... it's gone beyond bullying at that point. I mean, that's an act of physical violence. You know, I think we've got to kind of change the way we even talk Mm. about these issues. You're getting bullied if someone's making fun of your freckles, if someone knocks the books out of your hands. But if you get kicked in the groin or choked or punched in the face, that's violence. So, yeah, fair enough.
3: Yeah, so it's pretty bad here in school here because our principal thinks that she's a Miss Big Shot. And they think that she's going to help people, but all that she cares about is her own self. She don't care about her students. What I'm starting to think is that she only cares about that paycheck in between her fingers.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to that because I don't know the situation, but when you've got the complication of the parent of the other child in the fight, is working for the school, then yep. that may indeed complicate it. Yeah, I get that, Donovan. Uh, final yeah. word to you. So you're waiting for the district to do something. Or is the district possibly hmm. waiting for the police investigation to run its course? Is that maybe uh, what's I going on?
3: So. I think so, there, Patty. Okay.
1: Keep me in the loop. Let me know what happens.
3: Yeah, okay, perfect.
1: Appreciate the time. Thanks, Donovan. Thank you, Paddy. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, bullying has just become the catch-all. You know, as someone sent me a video, I don't say this, two or three years ago. And it was a big group of students circling this one uh, young fella and delivered a fairly solid beating to it. And the subject line, to him, the subject line said, bullying. And in fact, that's just not bullying, right? So we have the anti-bullying day and pink shirt day and what have you. So once again, if you know your mother dresses you funny or your mother wears, wears army boots, that's a bit of bullying. Someone punched you in the face or you get surrounded by a group and they're all swinging at you and kicking at you, we're not talking about bullying anymore. We're talking about an assault, physical violence. Let's take a break. When we come back, appreciate the patience, Todd. We're going to talk about the h Conference. Don't go away.
5: Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break.
1: Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three, Todd Perrin, you're on the air morning patty how are you this morning top shelf today you that's good boy not too bad by hanging in there good um, one one to
15: uh call and just uh, touch on the uh hospitality newfoundland labrador conference that took place in gander last week um and um you know just to say that uh it was a great few days of of you know kind of uh, camaraderie and and discussion and, and whatnot it was a you know sold out conference the, the attendance was very strong from from all over the province and uh you no, know, i think it spoke a lot to you know the the excitement and and the the belief in the future of the industry uh for the province that there's so many people who are willing to be involved and get involved in in the in the industry association and to uh to get together to talk uh you know what's what's going well in tourism and, and what's not going well so it was a i think it was a powerful meeting there was a lot going on there we were lucky to have uh uh, two federal ministers that were there for a good part of the weekend. Randy Watsonau was the minister, federal minister of tourism and social minister of finance. And of course, Goody Goody Hutchings was there. Goody's Goody lives and breathes tourism. Even though she's the minister of development for for Canada, but uh, but she's obviously a big champion for the industry in Newfoundland and Labrador. So it was a great, it was a great few days.
1: That's a good thing. I mean, the industry is important. You know, getting back to pre-pandemic levels, and that's every facet of the hospitality industry, you know, and starting with air travel. You know, when I read the stories and the government's trying to woo Aer Lingus here and what have you, is there even a remote opportunity to get back to where we were, you know, in addition to growing the industry if we don't see increased access and maybe dealing with some predatory pricing? Because for my money, when I look to travel, one of my first and prime considerations is how easy it is to get there.
15: Uh, well, I mean, you know, obviously uh, access is, you know, the number one, number two, and number three issue uh, when it comes to, and I would say when it comes to Newfoundland and Labrador, not just tourism. I mean, you know access, I think we, you know, I'm a believer that the tourism industry gets diminished. I believe that the tourism industry gets looked at as, uh, you know, sitting at the kids' table. We don't get viewed in the same way as Fishery, mining, oil and gas, all that kind of stuff. A dollar owned in the tourism industry is no different than a dollar earned in the tech industry. Uh, all of those things. So I think that when we when we frame the uh, the conversation around access around tourism, it diminishes the conversation around access. And access is uh, is a fundamental problem for the entirety of Newfoundland and Labrador, for the industry, all industries, and for the livability of this place. So you know I think that. Uh, getting the access conversation beyond the tourism lens uh, is important and i think that's starting to happen Um, but you know to your point patty obviously it's the lifeblood of tourism tourism is is reliant on travelers and travelers need access be it on marine atlantic uh, or uh, you know through the airlines so you know, I think there's a lot of work being done, but uh, and there's a lot of challenges, as we all know, coming out of COVID with the way airlines work and lack of pilots and lack of planes and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, fundamentally, something has to happen uh, in terms of access to this province for us to to prosper as a place to live, let alone a place to visit. So, you know, I mean, we're, we're hanging our head on immigration as a way to grow a population, which, you know, we all believe, you know, understand the demographics of Newfoundland and Labrador, and our birth and death rate is not going in a positive direction, and bringing people in there, immigrants from other places, is a, is something that's going to be necessary. And it's going to be hard to do that if they don't know if they can ever get out of here to go visit their folks back home. So uh, it's, a big, it's a big conversation that needs to continue, for
1: sure. Yeah, I, you know, I don't, maybe your thoughts on whether or not the issue gets diminished when we link it directly to tourism, fair enough, I never really thought about it like that. But this has an impact across the board. If the headline grabber is recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals, some of the most mobile, in-demand professionals in the country, they get to pick and choose where they want to be. So whether it be opportunities for their partners or their children or what have you, Don't tell me it doesn't factor in when they see what it takes to get here, what it costs to get here, what it costs to get out of here, because they have the capacity, money and otherwise, to do some travel when time is afforded to them. So these things are as broad as can be. Air access is not just for the muckety-mucks. It's not just for big business. It's not just for tourism. It's for a variety of things that we haven't factored in.
15: No, I agree with you 100%, and I I think that, you know, obviously as a tourism operator, uh, you know, we want to see, you know, more easier cheaper ways to get to visit this province uh, you know than we have now um you know i think that we've done a great job of marketing we've done a great job of spreading the word about newfoundland and labrador i mean you know there's a newfoundland and labrador diaspora around the world that tells the people in their cubicle next to them about what a great place newfoundland and labrador is to visit Uh, i think we have no shortage of market you know there's a lot of people out there that want to come to newfoundland and labrador but it's getting harder and harder to get here and i think that uh, you know, it's easy to, for us to wring hands and, and kind of sit around and go, well, you know, there's a lot going against us and the private companies and there's this and there's that. But, you know, progress, I think, you know, slow progress is happening. I know it doesn't feel like that for a lot of people. It certainly doesn't feel like that for me lots of times. But, but you know, I think that uh, it's, it's the type of thing that we just have to. Uh, look at as a, as an investment in the future of the, the entirety of the province. You know, and government gets behind all kinds of things and not suggesting that they are not behind this. They are. They've they put money on the table that they've never put on the table before and it hasn't been enough. But, you know, I think that, uh, you know, what type of investment is too much in making Newfoundland and Labrador a better place to live? You know, so uh, I think that, you know, the accessibility and people have been able to come and go, like you said, healthcare professionals, all types of professionals, Uh, You know, if we can create a more vibrant industry all across the board, all the industries, uh, you know, through a better, uh, a more accessible place, then that helps healthcare, that helps education, that helps roads, that helps the things that the government needs to do. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, being serious, and I mean really serious about uh, at the table with the people that, that, you know, move people around this world. Um, is something that we need to keep hammering home and we need to keep, uh, you know, we need to stop taking no for an answer and stop saying that we can't do it because it's hard, because there's lots of hard things. You know, try running the restaurant in a, in a pandemic, that's pretty hard. Uh, but there's a lot of people that got through it and are still going through it. So, you know, I think that, that, you know, it has to be, you know, you can't shout it from rooftops high enough. I know people are working on it, but I guess in terms of access, Uh, You know, it just has to be priority number one, two, three, four, five, and six for the whole province, not just the tourism industry.
1: Appreciate the time this morning. Todd, anything else you want to say?
15: Well, Patty, that's it. Just to say that, uh, you know, get out and support your local restaurant, get out and support your local bar, get out and support your local accommodation, your tour guides, your tour groups, everything is going on. There's a lot of passionate people who care a lot about the product that Newfoundland and Labrador offers in terms of tourism. Uh, and, you know, uh, a lot of us are in it for the long haul, and uh, we're, we're here to, to, you know, make it a better place to live for visitors and, and locals alike. So uh, get out there and support them. Spring is coming. Keep your heads up. Uh, we're almost there. So we'll uh, hopefully we'll see everyone uh, in the fall and uh, and have some a really good
1: season behind us. Appreciate the time, thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. Sad so, Perrin. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Line number one, Cindy, you're on the air.
16: Hi, Patty. How are you today?
1: Okay, you. Uh,
16: no further ahead, Patty. I spoke to you a few weeks ago about my son being thrown on the streets within hours of his spouse passing away. Um. I did speak to the deputy minister. He got in touch with housing, and housing told him that the family has the keys, so it's up to the family. So we've been trying to get in touch with housing because the police are involved now, and she, their family, her family told the police that they've passed the keys back to housing, but they think housing threw everything out. no. Everything wasn't thrown out. It's still in the home. Housing still won't let us in, in there to get his stuff, telling us to go to landlord-tenant. Can't even find a place to live because he's being helped by social services. So he's looking for a two- or three-bedroom place because he's two children, and nobody wants to help out that way either. He's still, on the, he's still with no clothing, no nothing, only for what I
1: could afford to go buy. Cindy, why wasn't he on the lease?
16: Uh, They were working on that, getting him put on the lease, and we, I had to get, they were staying at my place a lot because the kids were with me, and we had to get out of there in a hurry because we were dying from mold poison, so everything that we did manage to save is in different storage units because I could only get small units. And we couldn't find the paperwork, so he has no income. So working on getting the paperwork again and getting it passed in has just been a nightmare.
1: What's involved in putting someone's name on the lease? I would have thought that would be fairly fundamental.
16: Oh, no, he had to have uh, all kinds of paperwork from income tax, everything. Okay. To prove if he had it, what income he had and stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that's part of uh, access to newfoundland Labrador housing for everyone, even if it's a first-time or a primary lease uh, holder. Uh, anything else you want to say this morning, Cindy?
16: No, just that the fact that housing is still being the way they're being and won't let him in there to get his stuff and making him go through landlord-tenant and trying to find a roof to put over his head. I, I, I'm sleeping on a couch too, so... Like, it's been a nightmare trying to find something, somewhere to live.
1: I wish you good luck. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome, Cindy. Bye-bye. All right, uh, how we doing out there this morning, David? Let's take a break. Still plenty of time to speak with you. Uh, the topic, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, this always happens, and predictably, so fair enough. You know, so when we talk about things like air access, I get the same group sent me email saying it's a stupid topic because there's no need. If the seat count was there, the airlines would be fighting over it. It's just fundamentally not true. So the one people point to all the time is WestJet's flight from St. John's International to Dublin. I think it was here for five years maybe or something like that, but I know and have confirmed with WestJet that the seat count sales went up year over year. The one time that I was on that flight, it was full. So that's just indisputable. The issue was, is that other airports were more aggressive. Other airport authorities were more aggressive in bringing more and more routes to their region, to their hub. And in this case, we lost that flight to Stanfield International in Halifax. They've since lost it because someone else, again, either put more in the way of uh, subsidies or incentives financially in front of WestJet. Now it's even been more further complicated in this country where it really does look and feel like Air Canada services the eastern portion of the, of the country, including a lot of central, and WestJet's going to focus in on their business out in the west, western part of the country. None of that is helpful. Then there's the whole issue with the lack of pilots, and I didn't even know that was a thing. So for some of the smaller carriers and the potential for more of the low-cost carriers, that's not there because they are poaching the pilots to get on board of an Air Canada or a WestJet aircraft. And so consequently, on top of everything else, the predatory pricing and the lack of access, now apparently we've got a problem as well with the number of pilots. And there's fewer pilots being graduated from flight schools than any time in the last two decades. That's according to the news story that we read and the association representing pilots here in the country. Okay, let's go to line number one. And say good morning to adjunct professor, pavement engineering at Memorial University. That's Dr. Kamal Hossein. Good morning, Dr. Hossein. You're on the air.
17: Hi, Tiki. How are you? I'm doing
1: well. Thanks for asking, sir. How about you?
17: I'm doing fine. Fine.
1: Let's get into road work. And you and I have talked in the past, but I think it's even a, a it's even more relevant today, possibly, given the fact the province's, you know, the quote unquote unprecedented spend in road work for this upcoming season, some $225 million. My question to you, Dr. Hossein, is it really feels like it's the political pressure to pave as many kilometers as we can, as opposed to modernizing our approach to uh, paving roads and talking about chemical compound and getting value for money so that the roads are more robust or they last longer than they currently do in this province. Your thoughts?
17: So, it is really not changed uh since we talked about three four years ago with in your show and and with all the medias um uh with the telegram and cbc so government really did not change fundamentally to improve our road performance in newfoundland okay so by by, by that i meant we really did not improve or change our specification that is needed for our road in terms of uh, mixed design. So that I, I have been telling uh, uh, to you guys and directly to the engineers um, uh, in the Department of Transportation uh, to improve their mixed design to use superpave system, the advanced system that in other provinces use. Um, So I really hope that the money that they're budgeting uh, for this construction season, they put some money for improving the quality of the work. So you get a best return of your money you are spending. spending. And in terms of testing also, they spend uh, some money uh, to test the materials and uh, so so our pavement lasts longer. So, uh, do you happen to know what happened with
1: the uh, the province? I, I think tested five different chemical compounds for asphalt, and we are we're still nothing has changed as per your comments there a couple of minutes ago. So, do you know what happened with those tests? So, uh,
17: so again, um, they they uh, they. It, uh, prepared some test section with the same thing, actually. Uh, I, I feel like it was uh, uh, just uh, as a pressure. If you remember, there was an audit report, okay, on our uh, pool works that the uh, uh, Transportation Department uh, um, uh, did over the years for uh, building our roads and pavement. And, and, and Auditor General basically put a... Uh, uh, very comprehensive report uh, showcasing so those issues. So just as a part of it, uh, they did this test, but it was never really published the results from those work. And um, I am not uh, uh, really familiar if, if they did ever. And also, as I said, fundamentally, those um, materials they put down again using the uh, old procedure, 1940s Marshall mix design procedure. So I really hoped uh, the Department of Transportation use advanced mix design and and introduce advanced testing. So we do not see rutting and we do not see pothole uh, uh, and uh, and the cracks that we see a lot in our default road compared to other provinces in Canada. Which provinces do it right? So I am now sorry, Mr. Petty. Which, which provinces
1: do a better job, have a more modern approach, whether it be the bed preparation or the chemical compound of the asphalt? Who has so, modernized their their paving approach?
17: So I basically present presented the whole history about the Canadian paving uh, specification and and construction specification to the Minister Steve Croker in I believe in twenty eighteen or nineteen. Uh, so, uh, so MTU, the Ministry of Transportation of Ontario, uh, Ontario, used those advanced uh, construction specifications since 2000. It's 23 years now. Okay, so many other provinces, including uh, New Brunswick, use uh, SuperPave or the advanced system for many years now. Um, uh, 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 so again, uh, it's a continuous improvement process. Uh, uh, uh mtu for example the ontario ministry of transportation recently they again developed a big lab to test the material uh what what um, uh, a contractor are putting down in the mtu road in ontario roads so uh, which is is uh, totally missing in newfoundland uh, in my experience
1: and so, what does testing look like? Does that mean we make a small batch of payments? and then how does testing prove that it is going to be more reliable and last longer? What
17: does that even mean for testing? So, so there are a lot of advanced test uh, uh, developed in over the last twenty, thirty years to reduce rutting and and cracking and all other other kind of uh, damage we see in our asphalt. Uh, so, for example, uh, a test called Hamburg wheel rutting test, okay, so uh, it's probably $50,000 or uh, $70,000 equipment set up and you can uh, take the field core or uh, the mixture that you prepare in the lab, you can test that if this mixture will pass the rutting criteria or not before you put down uh, uh, in your highway, the expensive highway. So, so there are a lot of tests like that. You design those tests based on your jurisdiction, environmental criteria, and and material you put down. Yeah, because I mean, we've got to get it right. You know, sometimes it
1: really feels like the government is applauding themselves for how much money they spend. When, of course, you know, the gas tax was established basically to fund road work, bridge work, culvert work, or what have you. So, yeah, it's great to spend all this money, but if the roads aren't lasting as long as the road should, then I'm not so sure we're on the right track. Uh, Anything else you'd like to add this morning, Dr. Hossein?
17: No, again, uh, um, um, I think my really expectation is from the government uh, is um, that they spend some money, To improve the specification for training and development to the workforce, okay, and on research. So they adapt the specification considering the climate change. From my uh, own research group, uh, Dr. Surya Sonna recently completed a PhD thesis on the climate change impact on Newfoundland Road. So, and we shared those data, okay, uh, and publication with the government engineers in the Ministry of Transportation. I really hope they, they consider this and, and take this result and adopt the design procedure and, and further look into these things.
1: Uh, last one, Dr. Hossein, Do you happen to know why it seems to me that when you drive through the national park that is Nova, the roads are a certain way and last a certain length of time versus on either side of Nova where we did a lot of road work in the re- last couple of years, but yet they're not standing the test of time. So do you understand what the difference would be?
17: So, again, it's for any uh, material uh, has a performance life, okay? So, and the performance will depend on your design and the, the fundamental ingredient that you use, okay? Uh, so, and the way you manufacture the product. So, certainly there is a difference uh, between uh, between the contractors and between the specification uh, that we do in our uh, provincial system versus the uh, federal uh, road section in the federal territory. So um, that may be the one of the main reasons, but I really need to look at the documents uh, for, for bo- from both jurisdictions to comment on that.
1: I appreciate your time this morning, Dr. Hossain. Thank you.
17: Thank you, Betty. It is always nice to talk to you. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: Dr. Kamal Hossein, Associate Professor in Pavement Engineering. Someone's saying, why Why this particular guest? Well, that's actually his field of expertise. Let's take a break. Don't go away.
5: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Member of Parliament uh, elected by the Conservative Party of Canada and the residents of Stormont, Dundas, South Glengarry. That's Eric Duncan. Good morning, Mr. Duncan. You're on the air.
2: Good
18: morning. Good to be with you.
1: Happy to have you on, Eric. I know you were in the province last week, and we couldn't get to you, but welcome to the show.
18: Well, thank you for having me. We had a great uh, four days all across the province. I said to everybody, we got our meals and our miles, and it was good.
1: That's a good thing. So what's the message you're bringing around the province?
18: Well, we were on, you know, I'd say a listening tour. I, I have a municipal background before my time becoming an MP. I spent a lot of time meeting with mayors and councils, touring businesses, and uh, just trying to take uh, take in what some of the feedback is to come to Ottawa. I think more importantly, as well, in the bigger picture, the some of the issues. Pierre Polyev, as our leader, was in the province the week before, um, and we believe we have a message and priorities that can resonate. With, uh, with all parts of the province. And uh, we want to make sure we have more of a presence there, out on tour, listening to people, getting our message out on the carbon tax, on the opportunity for natural resources and Newfoundland and Labrador's future. So um, we had a great four days. It was busy, about 25 uh, meeting stops and tours, but uh, we are going to be having more of a presence in the province you'll see in the coming months to, uh, to um, make sure they get the message out that we know Uh, what the priorities are, and I think ours match up
1: nicely. The carbon tax has dominated the messaging in in the advertisements playing on this station, for instance. You know, looking back, when we talk about uh, political evaluations of potential for success in one province or nationally, in the most recent federal election, somewhere in the neighborhood of almost two-thirds of Canadians voted for a party with a climate change plan. When your former leader, Mr. O'Toole, brought his plan forward, I wasn't so sure I could really understand it. And this is not to suggest that the federal-liberal scheme or a structured plan here is working because emissions are up. So what does a conservative plan look like in dealing with anything regarding climate change?
18: Well, Matty, you're right. So here's the thing I say about the carbon tax. It's not an environmental plan to lower emissions. It's a tax plan, and it's actually creating a worse economic cost of living. It's adding to the pressures we're already facing in families' Are already facing. So what we have said when it comes to emissions reductions and doing more environmental protections and climate change, we believe that technology, not taxes, is the answer to all of that. So here's the problem we have. In your point of what you just said, uh, in the province of Ontario, where I call home, we've had a carbon tax in place for years. And every single year, emissions have gone up, not down. And instead, we have a cost of living issue, grocery prices, inflation, that's getting worse and worse as time goes on. So it's not solving the environmental problem. It's creating an economic issue. And the province uh, Newfoundland and Labrador spending a lot of time from Deer Lake right across to St. John's. It gets perpetuated even more. And I think the province is going to feel the carbon tax even more in the coming years because it takes groceries or transportation costs and there's a carbon tax and all of that. What we see in a place like Ontario, it's even worse whenever it has to be trucked 1,800 or 2,000 kilometres and ferried to the province. So what we have said is when it comes to environmental protection and lowering emissions, the best thing about our oil and gas and all of our natural resources, for an example, we actually put this extra lens on to say we can do it better from uh, technology than any country around the world. The part that frustrates me and I think frustrates the the. Uh, sectors in the investment climate in Newfoundland and Labrador, is that when we cancel a pro, and the government, liberals cancel a project and say, we can't do this, or they dither and they delay on these things, we act as if the demand goes away. And instead of Canada doing this and having all these conversations on what we can do, we've got countries like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, sh- Russia, China, uh, that are not having these conversations on doing better, on using better technology to lower emissions. And instead, the global scale emissions go up further.
1: Yeah, I mean, some of that's wild, wild west. I'm not so sure mimicking Venezuela or Russia is necessarily in our best interest, regardless of what sector we're talking about. Do you think this is more politics than policy? Because it's not that long ago. When we talk about classic conservatism, it was market pressures, right? It was price point. So... A uh, carbon tax used to be the chosen path for the Conservatives, including uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And now that the Liberals imposed the carbon tax, whether or not it's working, I think emissions and a per capita uh, benchmark is probably a little bit more meaningful than simply an emissions number. So do you think we're simply playing politics? Because this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. We're you know we're involved in the international community. So again, the fundamental question is: Is this more about politics or policy?
18: But but, I go back where, where you know it is a fundamental issue, and, and Patty, the argument that we are saying is, is that the cost to see a home, the cost to buy groceries is adding up and putting a significant and real burden on way too many families in this country and so I agree that there's a contrast here to both the approach and what we do to do all of this, but I will say you are you're absolutely right that this is an international argument, it's an international issue and we live in an interconnected world but i'll go back to the same point i made just to clarify again when we compare to venezuela my point being is when we are canceling projects and delaying projects and taking investment and driving it out of the province and driving it out of the country that demand for those products does not go away and instead of canadians having it with the standards that we hold the commitment to do better to use all that technology keep ticking higher instead it goes to countries instead to get the revenue and they have no attention to climate change or respecting that or wanting to embrace technology and many of those countries human rights is also a huge issue and the bigger international picture we're living in so I think the contrast we're providing addresses a lot of those things we're talking about scrapping the carbon tax and getting that off and trying to lower the price of goods to lower the price of housing lower the high, uh, price of home heating and instead when we talk about we can actually use natural resources and do it in a way that's the best in the world, that in a global picture, do it better than anybody else, as opposed to leaving it to and many other countries that aren't having their elected officials go on radio talking about a commitment to environmental protection and lowering emissions and using technology and doing the absolute opposite. So to your point of it being a global picture, our proposal is exactly that. We can be more competitive, uh, both, I think, in our economy here in the country and around the world by our approach.
1: Uh, what's interesting, though, is also uh, Federal Minister Stephen Gibo at the most recent COP meetings, refused to sign on to the declaration that said Canada will move away from fossil fuels, in whatever the language was, but that was the intent of it, and we didn't sign it, which is really quite interesting. One thing that your leader, Mr. Polyev, is saying is regarding utilizing more of the natural resources currently being produced in this country, and he's made mention specifically of, like, for instance, the Irvings, and they bring in and they import a lot of Saudi Arabian oil. So some members of your base, will call it, will say things like socialism and communism and whatnot. So is the Conservative Party actually saying they're going to dictate the private business where they get the product that they're going to refine, in this case oil?
18: I think what we're saying is, is that we have a capacity to ramp up our production and opportunities here in the country to make the case and make the pitch for companies in Canada and around the world to use our products. I don't think we're using our potential enough to approve projects and get them going. Um, so, I uh, think the more we're talking about is we can use more levers and tools to get Ottawa out of the way. The gatekeepers, as we call it, there's a lot of companies that are interested in investing, creating jobs, creating paychecks, creating revenue for the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, for an example, and they're being held back. So what we're talking about is we provide more options and we provide more product not just currently, but ramping up and actually approving projects as opposed to delaying them out and dithering and the investment in Mm climate being so dangerous, we can actually make progress on that. So it's providing more Canadian options for Canadian companies and companies around the world to use our products. That's what we're talking about right now. There's many, and again, I think the Irvings bring in and how they do that as an example, one that you cite, is because of a lack of availability here in Canada. We are importing products even for domestic use in this country because we don't have enough capacity here ourselves. And what we're saying is we can do more, we can do it better, we can create Canadian paychecks and use the best and latest technology around the world to do it, in contrast to having to rely on other sources from around the world. And so, if we provide that up ramp up, we provide that more opportunity. I think there's a better, uh, better chance that Canadian products will be used. It's yeah. a win-win.
1: Well, the Irving's could buy it from us. <laughs> that much we know. You know, these companies will have built-in contractual relationships with refineries, whether it be in Houston or in the UK or what have you. And of course, that is a that's between the producer and the refinery company. In this case, we're talking Irving's. Uh, you know, since the federal government released. Beta Nord, from its environmental assessment. That leaves exactly zero projects in front of the Assessment Agency of Canada. And then we've talked a lot about gas. Or right here, Mr. poliev have talked about gas, and gas is an important conversation. Since the approval for a go-ahead for the project in Kitimat, nothing's being done. Do you happen to know why? Because that was all the rage. We should be able to do, you know, get in on the gas demand around the world. A lot of that was stoked by the war in Ukraine and the issues in Germany. So that final approval for gas and that big uh, facility in Kitimat as my understanding is nothing's going ahead? Do you happen to know what's going on? The
18: investment climate and the confidence for people to invest in our natural resources sector, to invest in, in gas, is absolutely crippled under the current the leadership we have in Ottawa. There are no companies, Patty, to your point, look at the potential and the opportunity and the capacity we have in this country. The simple fact that there's, quote, none in the queue is the fact that the investment climate, people thinking whether they make the money, they put all their work into actually making a project go-ahead, and they see things left, right and center get delayed and dithered or they get killed outright. So we are we have an investment climate uh, of, of tapping into our potential and our economic growth that's stifled right now. There's very few people in the sector that believe that it, the worrisome of investment to put tens of millions of dollars into ramping something up that might or might not go ahead or might be killed, depending there is. When we look at the capacity, the issue is there's so much potential and opportunity that literally, no pun intended, tap into. And the fact that there's fewer fewer and fewer projects, that speaks to the environment, the, the investment in the opportunity environment that the Liberals have created across the country. We are one of the most abundant in the world. And one of the slowest to actually get any projects going, and it's, it's driving investment away as opposed to us leading the way when it comes to these things.
1: Yeah, now, for instance, in Alberta, divestment has been happening prior to 2015 as well. My point was that there is a natural gas project approved, that nothing seems to be happening. I'm just wondering if you happen to know why. Just a couple more quick ones before we run out of time this morning, Eric. Sure. Is another one of the controversial issues, of course, and it will be part of the conversation come uh, election time, is immigration. So the processes and protocols have not changed. All that's changed is the numbers. So the f- the federal government now talking about, you know, 500,000-ish per year over the next three years. So that, you know, it absolutely has an implication with housing. It has an implication with health care. But what we do and what we hear sometimes is what I consider to be a real oversimplification of a complex issue. So, for instance, Roxanne Road. Mr. up simply says, we'll shut down rocks and Road, you know, do you think we should have more of a broader conversation, including things like what a safe third country agreement looks like and the need to deal with that as opposed to yeah, simply close point. a point of entry? Because we share a 6,000-kilometer border. You know, if you don't get through there where there's actually infrastructure and human resources to deal with migrants, uh, you know, we call them irregulars, you know, seeking asylum, what have you. So do you think we've oversimplified uh, a complex issue by simply saying we close one road and all of a sudden the problem goes away?
18: Well, no, and we've said there's more to it than that, Patty, in terms of the closing Rock Road is a key part and a key first step to addressing all this. But let's go back to the fundamental issue of why we are here Eight years, the, the Liberals have had control of the immigration system, and it's absolutely broken. The backlog, you're right, volumes and requests are going up, but the backlog is into the millions and millions. So the reason why Roxham Road is now more desirable for people as opposed to seeking through the legal routes the ability to claim asylum or refugee status, people are giving up because of the long waits in the, in the, the block process and the broken system, and they're circumventing it. So the very fact that we have this issue is because we have a broken regular system, an orderly system to go through. So closing Roxham Road, I think, is important because we have to let people know that this is not the proper way and this is not the way. We are a welcoming country, as you can tell, and have been through governments uh, of all stripes over the years of welcoming new Canadians. But we have to get that under control because it's diverting uh, I think tens, well it is not to think it is, diverting tens of millions of dollars to resources on an irregular route through Roxham Road. I, I come from Eastern Ontario and we have a large processing center that's using hotel space that's costing tens of millions of dollars in our region alone and those are taking away from the system and that backlog that's into the millions so no I'm sorry at the end of the day closing Roxham road needs to be done and again I think closing in the loopholes and, and strengthening uh, the safe third country agreement with the United States President Biden is coming into uh, to Ottawa or into Canada at some point this month and I think that needs to be the top of the priority but <laughs> The reason that this got circumvented and this process exploded, remember a few years ago it was temporary because of U.S. political uh, politics that was going on down there, and now the rates are higher than ever before. So it speaks of a broken system, of who broke it and why it's broken, closing Roxham Road, and then getting our backlogs addressed so people have confidence to feel they don't need to circumvent the process. Um, that's, those are absolutely key fundamental parts to solving the the massive problem we have when it comes to immigration. The one patio, just even from a local context, the frustration we have, we were in Gander speaking to a flight school, for an example, the process for international students being able to arrive where they've been going there for decades, the percentage and number that are being accepted now versus rejected the chaos, everything in that department, from many different angles, is broken and outdated. This comes to management. People are losing confidence in the government's ability to actually coherently address these things. The plans are lacking and service is getting worse. The size of the federal government are spending more money than ever before. I heard your previous guest when I was listening in talking about spending more money as if it's a result. They're spending more money They have a larger bureaucracy and public service than ever before, and the service has never been worse. It's an issue of broken and mismanagement, frankly.
1: So, I mean, does closing Rocks and Road include investing in the system itself? Because people are going to continue to come, and some of this is not even our doing. Look at the mayor of New York City bussing immigrants to our border, which is not helping at all. So does that mean you're also going to invest in the system to deal with backlog? Because we can close Rocks and Road and pretend that people aren't going to continue to try to come, maybe through a less safe path. Area. So investment, yes?
18: Absolutely. We, we know that immigration is going to be key. And again, the tour of the province that we had last week, the number of both in St. John's and the rural communities, Deer Lake and Cornerbrook, uh, IRCC immigration gander that is all brought up. It's a huge part of our economic future, particularly in addressing our labor shortages and skill shortages that we need to have here. So we've been very clear, Pierre's been very clear, that we're going to make investments in IRCC to clear the backlog but also make it easier for people. For example, you talk about healthcare and the crunch that we're in, getting foreign credentials recognized. The number I heard last week that 41, only 41% of doctors that arrive in Canada from around the world are practicing as doctors, 39% of nurses. Something is broken in that system where we're so desperate uh, in our system to try to have new workers and health care workers come in. spoke to somebody here last night in Ottawa, going through years and years of retraining after being educated in the Philippines, costing them tens of thousands of dollars or more, and they're still not practicing in healthcare. So, Patty, we go back to say, yes, we're going to modernize the system. We're going to give them the resources properly. But the key part of this is addressing the backlog and the red tape to actually get people who want to immigrate, that come to Canada, It's family reunification. The, ta- the idea of it versus the actual practice is night and day, and it's very, very broken after eight years. Something's got to give. They've thrown more money and everything Mm -hmm. else at it, and they just can't get it done.
1: Yeah, and Canadians trained abroad, there's only something like 9% of them are able to get a residency position. Now, most of that, of course, is provincial jurisdictions, so between medical schools, of which there's only 17 in the country, and the colleges. So that kind of falls back to our premiers and health ministers. Not to say there shouldn't be more guidance federally on health care, but I appreciate the time. We're over time, but uh, thank you for this this morning. Thank you for
18: having me on. I appreciate it very much. And I have to say, it was a cold week last week, but the hospitality was warm for my first visit. I'm looking forward to being back. So thanks for having me on.
1: Pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. That's Ontario, a member of Parliament for Stormont, Dundas, South Gungary, Eric Duncan. Final break. Talk away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Cyrilla. You're on the air. Yes.
19: Uh, I listened to a guy call in about the milk cartons. Yes, ma'am. Well, I've bought several uh, small the small ones uh, lately, and almost every one of them I can't open. I had to get a kitchen knife to to cut them open. Be so anyway. They never. It seems like the cardboard or the plastic on them never. it it's it's not as thick as it used to be, and they don't go reach the expiry date on the milk. So I've decided I'm not going to buy any more of the milk, sour milk usually, uh, unless they put it in glass bottles. That is what it used to be, and it's better for the environment, and it's certainly better for the health.
1: Fair enough. You know, since uh, Tom uh, uh, talked about the milk cartons, I've had several people send me emails saying they were experiencing the exact same thing and also saying that there's a lactose-free variety that has a very easy-to-use screw top or a different apparatus to open it that they thought was working for them, better than the hard-to-open cartons. So that's interesting.
19: No, that's the ones I buy. Oh. It's lactose-free, and they're not easy to open. That's the one I, got. I, have, I had to get a kitchen knife to them twice. And, and before that, I managed to hurt my fingers trying to open them. <laughs> it seems the more things go forward, the more backward they become, whether it's the milk cartons or the pavement on our roads or whatever you can think about.
1: <laughs> Bring back the bag of milk.
19: <laughs> no, not the bag, the, the glass bottle.
1: Glass bottle, fair enough. Cirilla, you've had the last word. Thanks for making time. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. Right, bye-bye. All right, we are out of time, but we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.